Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. And good morning, Wake Up Squad, and thanks for getting up with us again later, author, Tyreen Wright will be back in our classroom. Dr. Wright is the author of the book of Booker T. Washington, The Making of a Pan-Africanist. Before we hear from Dr. Wright, the daughter of America's alleged first master spy in the so-called Middle East, Charlotte Dennett will offer a different perspective on the conflicts in Ukraine and Gaza. But before Ms. Dennett, educator James Cunningham and the panel will check in talk about education and to get us started though we're going to speak with the president of appeal incorporated dr cleachy Gwyn. before you even talk to dr Gwyn, i gotta ask you this question kevin good morning first of all uh, uh, kevin uh you know we we talked hey, about uh reverend ike's son yeah. and uh and I, I, it was it's kind of surprising so we picked up what some of the listeners picked up on friday when they called in about reverend ike's son and and what he said as a metaphysicist yeah, man, the book comes out December 19th. I can hardly wait. I think it'd make a great Christmas present. Hint, hint, on the, <laughs> underneath of someone's, <laughs> under someone's tree. Oh, a great Kwanzaa gift, as a matter of fact. Books, yeah. books are recommended for Kwanzaa. But, uh, yeah, man, I, he, he's got me researching everything from the, uh, the law of resonance to, uh, you know, law of attraction to the the ch- chakras, it, you know, it was uh, yeah. it was a fascinating conversation, no question. Oh yeah, uh, we hope, well we'll have him back maybe in, in December then when the books are ready. But you mentioned December, and you mentioned Kwanzaa. Speaking yeah. about Kwanzaa, Dr. Kalichi Igwin is here. Dr. Kalichi, welcome back to the program. Good morning. How are you? So much for having us. Yeah, when we uh, Kevin just mentioned Kwanzaa. I know you're working on your Kwanzaa calendar. How's that coming for us? Oh, it's going great. You know, Kwanzaa is a, is is one of the um, the legacy rem- remaining legacies from the, uh, the Black Power era that's still with us. Um, that's become more uh, popular and, and remains universal. Has grown to be not just be about um, celebrating African American culture, but Black culture in general, and is now celebrated all over the world. We're happy to be part of that and to help organize Kwanzaa programs and, and use it as an opportunity to promote, you know, black empowerment and uh, economic empowerment and buying black and things of that nature. So it's a, it's a great opportunity to really celebrate black culture and give back. Right. You know, uh, and I should have told the audience, uh, you're the president of Appeal Incorporated in Washington, D.C. It's been a minute since you've been here. So why don't you just, because uh, we, we've got a bunch of new listeners, that, you know, always get new listeners jumping on just about each and every day. So if you can tell us what Appeal is, what you guys do in the district. Yes, yes. So Appeal is a black empowerment organization. Um, we're actually... Uh, national, not just even though we are based in D.C., we are we we're a national organization. We have members all over the country. Um, we have the mission to organize and strategically utilize the vast resources of people of African descent, you know, uh, nationally, locally, um, as well as internationally. The idea is that we have um, within our community, within our um, among our people, we have the resources that we need 
to be able to elevate ourselves and create prosperity for ourselves, but we just don't have it organized. Our, our issue is not so much lack of wealth, but lack of, of organization of that wealth. Um, so we want to pull that together. And we have several platforms to do that, which includes the effort to start the first national uh, black credit union, one that is available all over the country, regardless of your job or your region or your church or whatever your situation may be, one that our, all black people can participate in. We also have, uh, you know, financial literacy workshop series and historical cultural literacy workshop series. We have um, co-ops supporting uh, uh, black manufacturers, uh, think tank, and several other platforms all towards that same mission of using the resources that we already have to achieve what we need to achieve as a community. Right. It seems like your focus is on economic freedom. Is is that deliberate? Is that where you see we can we can make the most, or where we need to make the most change? Well, it, it needs to be holistic. You know, economics is, is a big part of it. I mean, if you don't control the economics of your community, you don't you don't control uh, what happens in your community. You don't control the resources in your community. It's, you, you have to depend on somebody else um, for everything you need in your community. Then you you, you know you can't have empowerment. Um, okay, so that is that is a part of it, but you also have to elevate the consciousness of your people. You know, you have to be able to control um, the, the politics that uh, that surround your people. You need to be able to uh, to orient them on their culture and history in a way that's beneficial to them. You need to be able to analyze the challenges uh, that you face as a community, and, and then you need to pull your resources together, right? So. All that is, is 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 part of the effort to create truly self-sufficient, prosperous communities. Simply having having the capital, you know, and controlling the capital is one thing, but your people have to also have a sense of consciousness of themselves in order to improve, in order to grow. Right. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that at eight after the top there, because Dr. Claude Anderson, I know he's written a, or provide us with a, a roadmap of how to achieve that. And he says one of the biggest problems is is that black people still think that the white man's ice is colder, sugar sweeter, and his water wetter. You, you're about to embark on creating a, a credit union uh, for the black community. How are you going to get people convinced uh, some of those who you mentioned, you, because you mentioned you use the word conscious quite a bit. How are you going to get people who are not, quote unquote, conscious to support black efforts? Well, you know, some people you're not going to get to support it, but they'll definitely take part in it. In other words, there's enough conscious uh, black people. There's enough, enough people who are who are serious minded, who are willing to put their money where their mouth is. To, to create something. Once you've created, even those who are not conscious will participate in it because they'll benefit from it, right? In other words, I'll give an example. We have a a, a, a co-op, Black Saturday Co-op, where we, we we only carry products manufactured by black people. That's, that's our niche as a co-op. But that's products, everyday products, personal care products that people use every day like bathroom tissue, like detergent, you know, like toothpaste, you know, uh, uh, lotion, you know, the things that the consumables you're going to use anyway. Now, you don't have to be conscious to use those products. I'll give an example. When the pandemic hit, 
and everybody else was running out of, of paper towels, and they were having runs in stores, and and, and the and the uh, the aisles were were clear because we have our manufacturers come from a different line because we have black manufacturers for those products. We weren't running short. So all the folks who weren't necessarily helping us organize it at the time, once the pandemic hit and they couldn't go to to Costco and wherever else they were going to get these things, guess where they went? They came to us. All of a sudden our our customer base increased tenfold. Why? Because we were there. So my point is that once you build it, even if they're not necessarily of the mindset to, that there's a need to build it, they will come because they benefit from it. So if you build it, they will come. Yeah, and, and that's all a deeper conversation about that self-hate uh, when we start attacking each other or, or anything that we produce. But let me ask you this, though. Since the, the pandemic, have, have those customers who came, first-time customers, have they stayed? Some have. I mean, some went right back to where they were, but some have. We, you know, we. I can say that we, at least in this sense, benefited um, from that that pandemic because a lot of folks who who found us wouldn't have found us if it wasn't for that that stress situation. Yeah, a lot of them, most of them, you know, didn't didn't necessarily stay because you know they <laughs> they do believe the white man's ice is, is colder. But a lot of people did stay, and, and we have grown significantly since then and we've maintained that growth for the most part yeah but now you you want to teach financial literacy uh, tell us about that because it seems like in our community we uh, in many areas we're the last to know we're, we're always on the late train and by that time everything else that the all the good stuff is already gone so why did you decide that you want to teach our community about financial literacy absolutely um you know this is a this is a real key component of what we do at, um, as a community service in the PO is our financial literacy workshop series. You know, it, it's really fundamental that the people have control and understanding, really understanding of their own personal finances. You can't contribute to the greater financial upliftment of your people if your pockets aren't stable. If your pockets are empty, you can't contribute much. So we need folks to understand how money works. Um, and, you know, the, the folks that have money in this country, they understand how money works. So we need to understand how money works. We need to understand how, how banks work. We need to understand how all these institutions um, and uh, um, I, I'll call them financial engines that run this country work, both in a, in a small scale and in a large scale. So we, we start really with the person. You know, what what what, uh, what is your your uh individual financial situation. How are you preparing for your future? How are you preparing for uh, transfer of generational wealth, which, which is a big a big problem that we have in the sense that we oftentimes, one, don't have so much wealth to transfer, and every, and little we do have, oftentimes we we lose it, we squander it. And, if, um, and we have financial literacy uh, a series that deals with a lot of different topics, everything from, you know, from uh, – Simple how to save, right? Um, you know, to to invest in, to you know, to, to understanding banking. A lot of folks are still um, unbanked or underbanked. Um, so, uh, and we also uh, deal with you know preparing legacy. In fact, this coming Saturday, which is a really important um, uh, workshop uh, that we have, and all our workshops are 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 
you know, really, really important and impactful. But this particular Saturday, we have uh, estate planning. Uh, we're talking about how to protect your family's assets. You know, you don't have to be a millionaire, you know, to have an estate plan, to have a plan for what happens with what you have when you when you transition. None of us are leaving this thing alive, right? We, we, we got to understand that. So that being the case, you have to have a plan because if you don't have a plan, trust me, Uncle Sam has a plan for you. You know, we always hear about, you know, black celebrities, the ones who have the money, right, who have the wealth, right, who have millions of dollars, losing all of it to probate or whatever. And when, when they transition there, the families are fighting. They spend so much money in the court much money with lawyers and you know almost sometimes more than half of, of what they have is lost in that process why because they didn't have a plan just trust me if you don't have a plan the government has a plan for you and we can't be we can't afford to lose generational wealth that way that, that that's that is that's a, a, a um a, a mistake that that we are faulting <laughs> ourselves right. when, when you're when, when, when you're playing uh, uh tennis right that's a fault right and hold that thought right there, Doctor Kalichi, because I want to drill down in that a little bit more. But we got to take our first look at the traffic and weather. When we come back, though, because some, some people are saying they live check to check, is it what you make or how much you make? And how, how do you build that generational wealth that we we so sorely need in our community, folks? You want to join this conversation with Doctor Kalichi from Appeal? Reach out to us at eight hundred four five zero seventy eight seventy six at fourteen after the top. There, I will take phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on ten ten W. WOLB and the DMV run FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. 21 minutes after the top there with our guest from Appeal Incorporated, Dr. Kalichi Iguin. And they're trying to build a, a, a financial literacy program. Well, actually, they've built the program. Now they want you to attend. And we're talking about making money, not necessarily making money, but how to make money work for you. 800-450-7876. Before we get into the generational wealth, though, one of the topics we didn't talk about was credit. I think Mark in Baltimore wants to discuss that. He's online, too. Good morning, Mark. Is Mark there online, uh, too? Can you hear me yeah, okay? Ahead. Yeah, I can yes, hear you. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, next week after the Thanksgiving holiday starts the official annual winter holiday shopping spree. And my question is, in terms of having financial control of your credit, how do you go about uh, shopping for loved ones and friends uh, without going overhead on your on credit card debt and anything else? And when is the time to start using cash, if possible, instead of your credit cards? That way you can stay afloat instead of uh, having to worry about paying your debt off in about six months after the holiday season is over. That's my question. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, thanks, Mark. Dr. Kalichi? Thank you. 
Right. Well, that that's a, a an easy one, even though the answer may not be a popular <laughs> one. Is uh, you know, don't don't spend what you don't have. Um, you know, black people need to get out of this this uh, this mad uh, uh, dash at the end of the year for cust- for com- companies to make their their bottom lines, which are dollars. Which, are, which if you don't have the money. Don't go into debt to buy some 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 gifts or some presents for somebody. You know, we we need to show love to each other year round. That's why we don't focus on that. We focus on on celebrating community. We focus on on, on celebrations like Kwanzaa, which aren't about material things. Your family should not depend on the material things you buy them to know that you love them. You should show them love throughout the year. Do not go into debt to buy somebody some trinket that's probably going to be useless to them in about a month <laughs> or even a year, right? But you're still paying for it for, ten, for for five or ten years. Do not go into debt to buy some gifts for somebody. Show them love throughout the year. It's and that's real. That's that's real simple. We we encourage uh, 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 empowerment. If you are going to spend money. Spend money with black people, and so and um, during our own advertisements, it talked about uh, you know uh, black businesses in the community, which is a wonderful thing. We have to spend money with each other, but do not spend what you don't have. Now, that, that's a real simple. I know it's a hard thing to do, but don't go and don't use don't use credit cards to buy to go into debt. That's, that's, what, you, that's what you do every time you swipe it. Don't do that just to buy somebody something because you feel if you don't buy this child or this other person, you know, this and that, they won't know that you love them. That, that That's a, a cynical way of getting us to spend our last dollar just to make sure that uh, all these companies meet their, 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 their financial goal for 2023. There's a, a black uh, business directory. If you are going to uh, spend money during the, this period, spend it with, with, with black people. Uh, go to KwanzaaDC.org. KwanzaaDC.org. Click on Black Business Directory. This directory, especially for folks in the D.C. area, has everything. I mean, it, it's categorized. You know, whether you're talking about clothes or books or a dentist or a lawyer or a doctor or or real estate, you know, uh, it, it, uh, insurance, whatever it is, you know, uh, uh, we repair people. It's it's listed right there. So you know, we, we have roofers. If you if you have to spend money. During this period, you know, uh, on 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 gifts or what have you, we, we have those to spend it with black people. You can go to KwanzaaDC.org and click on uh, Black Business Directory, and you'll see the directory right there. But do not spend what you don't have. Don't go into debt for somebody to feel as if you appreciate them. We need to find other ways to show appreciation. And instead of getting caught up in the commercialization um, that's going on during this period, we should channel that into building community and celebrating each other through Kwanzaa. And 25 at the top there, you know, just about every year for, for the last maybe 20, 30 years, Dick Gregory and then Brother Ray called it, we, we should we should boycott Christmas, as they put it. Don't spend, and it's just, it's the most difficult thing for black people to do. I'm just wondering if they, you know, because already I've seen people online showing off their Christmas. They're putting up their Christmas decorations. Their trees are already up, and they, you know, they're all into this Christmas season already. How do how do how do you how can I put this? How do you get our, our folks to understand that 
it, it's it's a it's a pagan holiday for for some that that's hard to swallow for them to you know because they've, they've, they this is what they were uh, their, their parents taught them and their parents parents and they, and they've been doing it all their lives and and yet still you you put the information in front of them and, and they still they'll still reject it how, how do we how do we cross that hurdle dr Kalichi? well i mean you know you know the people have a variety of i hate to put it this way addictions right you know and everybody ha- everybody has their no, no pun intended. They're cross to bear, right? Um, so some people are going to receive it, some are not. Um, you know, if they were actually celebrating Christmas, if they were actually, you know, celebrating the the, the, the birth of birth of 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 of, of Yeshua, uh, the birth of Christ, it wouldn't be about those things. So the truth is, they're not even celebrating what they think they're celebrating. They're celebrating some ancient European, um, you know, uh, um, holidays right some ancient uh, you know, european idols and, and gods that you know openly they're doing it openly but they're not doing it consciously right so they're not even really celebrating what they think they're celebrating they're doing something totally different you know the, the yule log and 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 the, and the santa claus and the say uh, and, and you know the the um the uh the the, the god of, of the, that tree that they have in their house right you know, which you know, not, not to get biblical, but it literally says in the Bible not to do that. But I'm not trying to, you know, that's a whole other bag, bag of, uh, of 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 things. But people who have the information oftentimes aren't ready to receive the information. You know, they may probably heard it a bunch of times, but it's not going to sink in. Why? Because there's an emotional. That's the addiction part. There's an emotional component that pre- prevents them from accepting it. They may actually. Know on a surface level, but they can't help themselves because it's, it's like, and that's what an addiction is. That's why I say addiction. You you have the information, but you can't help yourself. If you actually were doing it because of a, of a religious uh, um, of, of a religious thing that you you consciously you raised, you know, Christian and so, so forth, then go ahead and celebrate Christmas. But that and then do it. <laughs> no no Christmas tree or Santa Claus or elves and none of the other stuff. That that folks are actually doing. So there's a disconnect, you know, there's a disconnect with that. But yeah. that's that's an addiction. They're addicted to to that um, to the, the commercialism that's part of this period. All right, they're addicted to white. Basically, that's what it is. But I want to go back to what Mark was was talking. Mark was talking about credit, and one of the problems, of the many problems that many people have, is, is credit. We don't have good credit. That's that's and that's a starting point uh, if you want to start a business, or get a car loan, or buy a home. It, it it starts with your credit. Are you going to have any any programs to help folks fix their credit? Absolutely, we have we have. You know, and we try to uh, focus on each topic and give it its time. So we do have workshops on um, on on uh, on credit, and, and we do and we do a rotation throughout the year. We usually have a couple of them throughout the year, but each week we focus on a different topic. But if you are if you are if you join Appeal, you are a member. We actually have archives. So you can actually go back, right? You can go back and 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 uh, and, and watch workshops on credit, on really any topic, because our, our archives are, are quite vast. It just so happens that we're halfway through this particular financial literacy series where you can, you know, like I mentioned, this coming Saturday, we're dealing with estate planning. Um, and next week, we're going to deal with uh, a, a holistic uh, family, uh, African-centered 
way of saving. We're talking about uh, living paycheck to paycheck. There's a way you can take your paycheck, right, you can, you, and benefit from it in a way that's not going to uh, be too harsh for you to manage, right? And, and, and it's called misusu. Unfortunately, at some point, some people try to use it to commercial, to you know, to commercialize it and and turn it into another tool, right, for 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 their own means. But we're talking about the actual misusu, the holistic African. Uh, saving system. We're going to have a workshop on that. You know, hold that thought right there. Can you explain what what that is? Because I've heard about that, and I've, I've heard uh, 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 Professor talked about that. Black economics talked about that. Uh, Susu, and he was trying to introduce it, to, but, but it, contend, it, it, it contains a trust factor, and he says that's why it hasn't really caught on with black Americans. So can you explain how Susu works and how it started? Absolutely. It does it does create a trust factor. And, and for me, I think that's one of the most beneficial parts of it. We need to build trust with each other. We are dealing with a legacy from, you know, from, uh, from colonization, from, from, uh, from slavery, from colonization, and now uh, a post uh, uh, neo-colonization, right, <laughs> in some cases, where we're still you know, dealing with that, that slavery mentality where we believe that we can't trust each other with money. You, know, you hear black folks say it all the time, but they won't even, I mean, unfortunately, I know black people who will not even patronize black businesses. They won't go to a black do- doctor, a black lawyer, a black mechanic, because they believe they can't trust them. You know, that, that's, that, that's a legacy from slavery that we are carrying with us. So we have to have tools to undo that, to build the trust that we need to build. And we build a trust, but, not with not necessarily with the intent of building the trust in the sense that that you know that, that that's a side effect, <laughs> a good side effect of the issues because you, ha- you you end up building trust with black people when you do it. So basically, Asusu is a it's a it's a ancient saving system, and it's a very powerful one. If you look at, for instance, um, certain communities that come from the continent, like the Ethiopians, for instance, right? You might be like, man, why are there so many Ethiopian businesses? Why they got all the parking lots, right? Why are there restaurants in every other block? What are they doing different? What are the, how, how are the Koreans coming up here with, you know, with, with uh, in our community and, and building these businesses? How are they How are they able to uh, gain capital to, to start these things? And when you actually look into it, you'll find out that, They've been using this SUSU system, which is basically it's a saving system. It's a way to encourage each other to save money in the ways that we can. They can be large. Actually, well, hold that thought right there, Dr. Kalichi, and we'll get into that when we come back. We've got to take our first look at the news, traffic, and weather. And I want to thank Jim Klingman, Professor Klingman, who, who highlighted that. SUSU says was doing it in Brooklyn. I think it was some people from the Caribbean doing that. And, it's one, and we kept wondering why, why we can't adopt it. And he says it's a trust factor. So I'll let you dig deeper into that. Maybe... People who are listening will, will, who have done it or uh, participated in the SUSU, you know, maybe they can share how it's done. And maybe we can catch on with in our community as well. Folks, you want to join this conversation with our guest? His name is Dr. Kalichi Aguin. He's from Appeal in Washington, D.C. And then they're going to have a teaching a financial literacy. That's what they're on about these few, these few weeks. So if you want to join in, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. 
or information is power. Onto your, your, your loved ones when you leave, because, you, you know, the bottom line is we're all going to leave at some point. We've all heard the horror stories of some of our well-known entertainers who moneyed entertainers, I should put it that, got a lot of money, and they, 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 when they, and they left their, their, their family squabbling over the money, and, and most of it get lost in probate, taxes, attorneys, and, and Uncle Sam gets his bite, and the family gets, uh, you know, what's left. So you've got, you know, you think you don't have enough, but you, there there is an ample amount of money there, or it's something that you've got, even if it's a baseball, you can leave for for your son or your grandson or your grandchild. You could do that. So those are the things that we, we have to adopt, and that's what a Healy's working on too, and also they they do a Kwanzaa calendar as well. I want to talk about that too because the Kwanzaa is coming up, and they do a great Kwanzaa calendar. As you mentioned, that it also contains where you can find if you're looking for a black business or, or outlet that you can purchase. So you know, many of us are, are still really into recycling our black dollars. You can go there and find a black service or a black business and and use that. Uh, if if you want to keep the black, because uh, that's what other groups do, they keep their money in that in their community. And Dr. Anderson has taught us about this, and he's preached about this in his book. You know, you, you look around uh, black labor, white wealth, for example, his first book that he wrote. That's where he, he came on our radar when he wrote a book because he was thinking about. How come that we're on the bottom of the barrel? Any metric that you name, we're at the bottom of the barrel. It can't be that we're just so awful as, as a group of people. We're just worse or we're not the smart. No, it, you know, that book tells us how it happened. And then he tells us, uh, Dr. Anderson will tell us that we're in a race. And in a race, somebody's got to win, somebody's got to lose. Somebody's got to come first, second, or third. They want to win all the time. So it's, it's rigged against us. You know, it's, it's not, it, it's, 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 it's that simple. You know, put in, in basketball terms, they, they, you know, they want to be the Harlem Globetrotters and they want us to be the Washington Generals. So we've got to figure out a way how to get out of it. That's why he wrote his second book, Powernomics. It, was, it outlines a strategy, how we can build black wealth. And, and but then it, it, the problem with the, with the building of black wealth, it, it contained a, a timeline and we had to we had to make that timeline if not we become a permanent underclass and unfortunately <clears throat> i don't think we've made that timeline you know so but there are ways that the last time i spoke to dr Anderson a couple of weeks ago he says there are ways that we can do it but we've got to move as a group we can't move individually and that's part of the problem too this is Basically, going back to what was, hopefully we have this conversation with Dr. Kalicia about trust, the the, the self hate is is just so it's it's, it's just mind blowing at, at certain levels, you know that we we trust other folks than than we trust ourselves, and we don't understand that it's basically it's it's self hate when you don't trust your own brother because your brother is you whether you know him or not is you that's how other people stay. Neely Fuller teaches that he says they have a code when they deal with us they stay on code they know how to react to us each and every way. When they deal with us, they and they deal, do it each way they deal with us. Whether it doesn't matter if we're we're, we're in Paris or over in Paraguay or, or or in Chicago. When they deal with us, they 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 when they look at us, they don't say where are you from, you know, or you got an accent. They don't even. It doesn't matter. They deal with us, but. Unfortunately, we haven't reached that stage. Well, some of us have not reached that stage. And that's, and that's what uh, Dr. Fox is also talking about, because Dr. Kalichi mentioned about these, the holidays are coming up and folks are addicted to buying gifts for all their family members. 
and we're wondering why, you know, this after all this time, there's, you know, you've, you've taught them about the, the holiday, what it is. And the other unfortunate part, I'm just thinking about this, folks, I've been in uh, different African states and, and they, they have their, their buses and they're named after uh, Jesus and Christmas. And, you know, in Africa, you know, they're talking about snow. And and, and Ashwa Kwesi broke it down for us. And hopefully we get him back here before the holiday is out. Uh, you know, dramatic, all of these symbols, the symbols of the Christmas symbols and folks once you understand all that you 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 know you sort of take take a back seat and go hey this is not for us this is, as usual most things uh, they, they don't think about us when they create these issues they don't think about us and our and our backgrounds that's why we have to do for ourselves we have to know thyself as, as brother quasi would say know thyself and unfortunately many of us don't know that's why there was so much self-hate it, it's it's sometimes it's mind-blowing to get brothers to trust and love each other brothers and sisters to do that it's so easy because we've been programmed to hate each other so much, it's it's really, really, really deep. And, you know, been doing on this program for quite some time and, and, and speaking with all these scholars, and we see the, the, the gains that we've made just by listening to these scholars. And sometimes you think that, you know, folks have been listening all along, that they've made these gains too, that they understand. They've been in class all along. And then as, as we, we'll have... Uh, We'll have Neely Fuller on, like we have Friday. And then the next day, somebody comes up and violates the concept of racism, white supremacy. It's like, wow, where were you? Did you miss it in class or didn't you listen? So we keep, we keep hearing stuff like that. And, and, you know, it's, it's going to take, it's going to take, uh, it's going to take a, a certain amount of us, a, a critical mass of us to, to move that, to, you know, to, to make that step forward. So the others will see and the others will can, can understand the progress that we made. But, uh, Kevin, do we have uh, Dr. Kalichi back yeah, with us? Yeah, oh, he's there. Yeah, yes, yes, I'm definitely back. And I, I did want to address a, a couple of things. So in terms of this SUSU, you know, trust is a, is a major factor. And, and part of what we, uh, what the, the workshop does is teach you how to create uh, and it's just to, if, with the folks that you do trust. In other words, if, if, even if it's just your family, even if it's just one or two people, in other words, where you have that trust, you're not going to trust everybody right away, right? But for the folks that you have, you have trust in already, right? That's the easiest place to start, and then you grow it. You want to, you want to have a, a, a system, you know, with people that you already have have some level of trust in, and the, the workshop. Which is not this Saturday, which is going to be on September, uh, uh, sorry, November 25th, will teach folks how to actually uh, organize those those uh, family-based, community-based savings systems. And that and all these workshops that we have, you can go to appealinc.org and click and click on events, and you can register for them. Um, in terms of the um, the estate planning, it's critical uh, that we prepare for the descendants we do not meet. Oftentimes, you know, we are focused on on, on, our, on our leaving things for our children, which is, a, you know, a good thing to do. But that's really not the point. The point is to, is to leave something for the next generation. We should be talking about grandchildren and great-grandchildren when we think about estate planning, because that's how the folks that we're up against are thinking. They're thinking 100 years down the road. They're thinking sometimes... 20 years down the road, in some instances, we should be thinking at least one generation, one next generation ahead, right? So it's about planning for those descendants that you will never, you may, you may never even meet, right? So it, it, it's really critical, but the information needs to be provided so people have, have access 
to these tools, and that's what we're doing with the Financial Literacy Workshop Series, which again, you can register for at appealinc.org. Click on events, and you can register for them. We're also talking about, um, you know, getting into investing. If you want to invest, you don't know where to, where to start. You don't know how to go about it. Um, we have a workshop on that on, on December 9th. So all, from now all the way until December 9th, we have a workshop for a variety of topics. Last, last week, we had a, a workshop on um, how to use insurance, right, to create your own personal bank, whole insurance. It, 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 these are tools that are, you know, that are, 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 are tax exempt, <laughs> that have been used to create some of the biggest companies in this country, but we don't know them. We, we, we you know, we, we, we've heard about them, but we don't understand them, and we don't utilize them. So the purpose of this financial literacy workshop series is to take us to that next level. And, you know, I, I believe that when people are given their information, and not everybody's going everybody, everybody to necessarily grasp onto it, right? But enough will. And I, and I believe that you know, we have enough of our people out there who are interested in improving not just themselves, but their communities and generations to follow. And it's our responsibility to provide the, the tools, the instruments to allow them to do that. So again, all these workshops that we're talking about, um, you can register for free. Uh, the first time you go to the workshop is free. It's appealinc.org. And, you know, we're here to provide this service for the community. Appeal does many, many other things. But right now, you know, we're focused on these financial literacy workshops. And the one that's coming up this, this Saturday is estate planning, how to protect your your family and assets and create generational wealth. Um, I mean, it's like, and it's, it's, it's on Zoom. It's not in person. All these workshops are virtual. So regardless of where you are, you could be, I mean, we had a, a, a got an email from a brother from Ghana. He was like, and I attend the workshop this weekend. I said, yeah, sure. I mean, it's for everybody, right? Regardless of where you, where you are in the world, let alone the country. So this is, this, is, this is a free opportunity to get information that you need to empower yourself and your family. And as a, as a peer, we're happy to, uh, to, uh, to offer that. And we also would like you to join Appeal and get involved with all the many other things that we're, we're engaged in. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, I don't let that right there, uh, Dr. Kalisha. We've got to take a short break. But when we come back, though, uh, explain to us if the folks who are living paycheck to paycheck, is this something they can embrace as well? Folks, you want to join this conversation with our friend, Dr. Kalichi from Appeal in Washington, D.C., reach out to us at 800-450-7876. got to step aside and get caught up on the latest traffic and weather in our different cities. We'll be back in four minutes, though, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. Information is power.
Now back to the Carl Nelson Show. And good morning again, family. 20 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest from Appeal in Washington, D.C. He's the president of Appeal, Dr. Kalichia Gwynn. We're talking about financial literacy and building black wealth. Before we go back to you, let me just remind you, coming up later this morning, we're going to speak with uh, author Dr. Tyreen Wright. Do you know uh, Dr. Tyreen Wright, I should say? She's written a book on Booker T. Washington. And also we're going to speak with uh, Charlotte Dennett. Charlotte Dennett is the daughter of America's alleged uh, first master spy in the Middle East. And she has a different perspective on the conflict in Ukraine in Gaza. Also, we're going to speak with educator James Cunningham as well. Later this week, we'll continue education with Pan-African educator Dr. Kemet Shockley. Also, Dr. Sebi's son, Abdul, will be here, along with attorney Malik Shabazz. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, you're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. So, Dr. Kaliji, we back on this thing, you know, because we look around and we see foreigners, they just got here last week and they have all these businesses. I'm wondering what happened to black folks. And, and you, you know, you honed in on a, a subject that uh, Professor, uh, Professor, Professor Jim Klingman has, has been told us about years ago. About the Susu that they did, the our, our brothers and sisters from the Caribbean, from the continent, they use that. So I'll let you finish explaining how how that works for us, and if we could do it here in our communities. Do we still have Doctor Kalisha with us? Oh, okay. I think his, his line dropped. Uh, thank you. I think his line dropped. We'll get, get him in, in a moment to respond to that. Because, you know, we, we look around, and if you go drive around D.C., go down Georgia Avenue, you see all the Ethiopian stores. And we're not begrudging our brothers and sisters to so come here and get into business. And good morning again, family. A minute after the top of the hour. Thanks for rolling with us this morning. I guess is Dr. Kalichi. Dr. Kalichi Iguin is the president of Appeal Incorporated in Washington, D.C. And they have a big program this weekend. But before you tell us about the program, Dr. Kalichi, uh, people who are living paycheck to paycheck, and that's a lot of folks these days, can they get involved in this? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we have we, we have to... Um, be able to uh, work with our people to help our people based on where they are. You can't help somebody, you know, if, if what you're offering, you know, is unreachable. So absolutely, all this is information to maximize what you already have. It's, it's a matter of, of having knowledge and then telling what you have in a different direction. A, a big part of of um, of the financial uh, security, right? Building financial security is understanding your finances. We were talking earlier about about you know how to manage you know paying debt from folks you're buying you know all this stuff during this 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 frenzy to buy and and, and meet bottom lines of companies end of the year calling it Christmas right calling it you know a part of the Christmas holiday period that's one thing you can stop doing right you don't have you know in other words it, it, regardless of what you're making you need to know not to Spend what you don't have, and that money that you save, right, from not spending, that money can be channeled towards something else that can help you build. So 
regardless of where you are, if it's a matter of just improving your credit so you're paying less on what you're already doing. You know, we already know that if you if you are um, if you have a bad credit or poor credit or not so great credit, it might be hard to get loans and things like that. But folks don't realize that in the, in the, with the things that you already have to pay for, you're paying more because you don't have good credit. And and it's just little information here and there, right? Things you can do differently that can actually reduce how much you're paying every month on the stuff you're already paying on. So it really is about the information. Regardless of, of, of how much you're making, believe me, the financial literacy um, upliftment and, and, and consciousness will help you improve your situation and allow you to now channel those resources to prepare for the next generation. Because if, you, if you, you're struggling and you're stuck struggling, it's hard to build for the future. But that information is critical. And believe me, regardless of where you are, all the information that we're providing is really relevant to you. All right. Before we let you go, how can folks get in touch with you? How can they reach you if they want to get involved with appeal and the financial literacy? Right. So the financial literacy workshop series, they happen every Saturday um, at 11 a.m. in the morning. But they're virtual. So all you have to do is go to appealinc.org, click on events, and you can register for the workshops. Again, this particular Saturday, we have the estate planning uh, how to protect your, your your family and your assets. That's critical. Also, uh, coming up um, this Saturday, we have our Black Saturday co-op for those that are in, that are in D.C. This is where we, we, we carry essential household products made by your favorite Black manufacturers. And, and we have a bonus this particular Saturday. There's a brother uh, from Tanzania who's bringing Maasai blankets directly from Tanzania. You know, this is, this is this is a one-time thing. So it's getting cool now. Folks want to want to bundle up. We have we have blankets directly from from uh, Tanzania made by the Maasai that you can buy right at the co-op. So if you if you if you ever seen those beautiful uh, woven uh, blankets that that the, the East African brothers wear, sometimes you see them. You know they're jumping with it, they're dancing with it. We're gonna have those blankets at the co-op, and the co-op is at 2015 Bunker Hill Road, uh, Northeast Washington D.C. And it's from one to 5 p.m. on Saturday, this this particular Saturday, uh, which is the 18th. So Saturday's going to jam-packed with the, with the workshop that we have in the morning and the co-op in the afternoon. But you can go to appealinc.org, click on events, and you'll find out all the information. You can also join Appeal and get more information on Appeal on the website as well. All right, good deal. Thank you for the work that you're doing, and uh, we got to have you back before Kwanzaa to talk about your Kwanzaa calendar as well. Thank you, Dr. Kalichi. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, folks, that's Dr. Kalichi Iguin from Appeal in Washington, D.C., at 6 after the top of the hour. James Cunningham is an educator. He's joining us. Good morning, James. Uh, how's it going, Carl? It's going good so far. It's going good. I understand you have a guest with you? Yes, I don't know if he's online yet, but it'll be a Christopher Cole. No, he's not here yet. Okay, his name is Christopher Cole. He's a distinguished okay. graduate of Temple University with a major in media production and a minor in Africa, Africana Studies. And right. he's also hey. a graduate of uh, D.C. Public Schools. 
And, and speaking about D.C. public schools, you were once the Teacher of the Year in Washington, D.C. Uh, so we, we uh, congratulations on that because that that's some free. A lot of teachers in the district, but uh, some you, you made it as Teacher of the Year. Having yeah, looking back know. now. Well, I taught for 38 years within the D.C. public school system, and I also taught on the university level. And so, uh, as re- I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to ask you, it, it, what are the changes that you see? Because we we hear so much about our students failing, and uh, not in, especially, you know, they, they like to highlight Baltimore. But Baltimore school system is, is now different from any of these urban school systems. What's what's wrong with the school systems? Well, we need to rethink, we need to rethink our mission statement. And we need to challenge our students in a way that's going to make them productive and critical thinkers. Okay, and, and uh, your, your your partner Christopher Cole is is joining us. Uh, good morning, Christopher. Is Christopher there on line one? I'm not hearing you. Hello, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, we can hear you now. Uh, good morning. Hello, how you guys Welcome doing? to the program. Good uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and James, tell us a little bit about uh, introduce uh, Christopher to the audience because you've been here before several times before. Tell us about Christopher. Well, Christopher was one of my former students uh, coming out of school with our walls. Uh, he's a distinguished graduate from uh, Temple University in Philadelphia. He has majored in uh, media and production studies with a minor in africology. And he's worked extensively with our young people in programs such as Learn and Serve. And he worked at the uh, radio station at, Ken- at uh, Temple University uh, called WIP. And I'll let Chris kind of elaborate on some other things he'd like to tell you about himself. Uh, and he's your, yeah. your former student of yours, uh, James, before you get started? Yeah. He was a former okay, student cool. of mine and an uh, uh, excellent student. Okay. Christopher? I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, I um, have over three years of facilitation experience and, uh, you know, definitely love working with children uh, and the youth. Um, I've always been interested in African-American history due to uh, teachings of Mr. Cunningham. So, um, you know, definitely would love to talk about how we can engage our students more in the classroom and, um, you know, really just be able to empower our children to feel like, you know, they have the ability to make a change in their community. So I think that our youth have a lot of great ideas that, um, you know, if we are able to set them up for success and give them the resources necessary to succeed, I think that, uh, you know, we'd be surprised how much change that they could bring upon our communities. So. Well, good to hear that. And let me ask James this, though. Is he one of those, you know, because one year we did a, a live broadcast from the CBC at the Commission Center in downtown Washington, D.C., and you brought some students by uh, to, so that the, the audience could meet some of these students, and, 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 and they were some smart, bright students. Was, was Christopher part of that group, or is he not? Christopher, Christopher was a part of that group at the uh, Convention Center. Oh, wow. And you know what? I got to tell the family this. Ten after the top there. I got to tell the family this. 
after those students spoke, you felt we felt everything was all right with our future because the children are our future. And too many times we hear about the negative effects of what they're doing, all the ones that are inappropriate in behavior. But there are some great students out there who who are doing great things. And uh, Christopher, man, could just I just want to say congratulations for, for uh, and to James as well for for you know producing young men like you and and young women as well who are part of that group of students. So uh, Christopher, fill us in. What have you been doing since the, the, that? that meeting at the convention center. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's, um, it was an honor to be there. Uh, definitely have to, you know, I'm very appreciative for the opportunity to come back today. Um, really, I've just been trying to, to work. I, I'm working now with a, um, a, a nonprofit organization that's in D.C., uh, U.S. State Department funded program called the Community Exchange Program. We work with over 80 countries uh, with students um, and fellows that are 21 to 28 years old, they stay in the U.S. for three months, and um, I'm an advisor to them. I'll place them and help place them in organizations while they're here in the U.S. so they can work and uh, kind of exchange knowledge and skills and things of that sort. And I'm also still working with LearnServe, which is an organization that uh, Mr. Cunningham recommended me for. Uh, it was an organization I was able to go to Zambia twice and. And uh, there we, I work with uh, DMV students and Zambian students and teach them skills for social entrepreneurship and how to start their own business. What was that like in Lusaka? Yes, in Lusaka, yes. So we, we meet with them virtually. Uh, and, and Lusaka was amazing. Uh, Lusaka is beautiful. I'm hoping that I can get to go to Zambia again. Um, and, you know, I think that there should be more programs for students to be able to go to uh, Lusaka and uh, go to Victoria Falls that is there and uh, Livingston and, and Zambia as well. You know, programs like that really expose children to how big the world can be. And, I, you know, growing up, I know a lot of people that have never even left their own neighborhoods, you know, so it's important to have programs like that, especially for young, you know, black students. Yeah, you're also, right about yeah, that. The next thing with uh, David under school. And that mm-hmm. in itself is an interesting collaboration. Uh, can you explain that for us, James? Well, David Gunter School is in Lusaka, and it's one of the top high schools in, in, uh, in Zambia. And what we do is we go there not just to be tourists, but to exchange ideas and collaborate with students so we can see that there's not a major difference between us. And the more we speak, and ex- exchange our ideas the closer we can get to solving a number of the problems that exist in Lusaka and in the United States because they have a misconception of students in the United States, and we have a, a misconception of them. But once we meet, we pull together, and that's where we're going to have success. All right. We come up, when we come back, the misconceptions, are they basically on the scholastic level or are they just misconceptions about black Americans, period, and our misconceptions about Africans in general? What are your thoughts? I'll let you explain that when we get back. And also Christopher can chime in as well. Folks, you want to join this conversation? We're talking about education with James Cunningham, former teacher of the year, Washington, D.C. Reach out to us at 800 450 7876, your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB in the DMV run FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, or information is power. 
And good morning again, family. 20 minutes after the top of the hour with our guest, uh, educator James Cunningham, a former D.C. Teacher of the Year, along with one of his former students, Christopher Claw. Uh, before we left with the traffic and weather update, uh, fellas, we were talking about the fact that this exchange program that you guys did with, with Zambia. Can you get into it and tell us why you think this would be beneficial for our, some of our other students that are listening around the country and going to other schools to how this uh, exchange program w- would work for them as well? Well, one of the things that um, when Chris was talking about the Learn Serve program, I got engaged with that uh, organization when I was at Anacostia High School. And in doing that, we were able to find out that there's a, a gap between understanding students in other countries and our young people stepping outside their comfort zone and their neighborhood. So what I, I was able to connect with uh, different organizations that gave them the opportunity to study with Desmond Tutu and John Hope Franklin in a program called Journey to Peace. And uh, we were able to create several murals in Eastern Africa, Tanzania, Kenya, Zambia. And in doing that, we're finding that, or I found that, there we are closer than we think. But before we even get to those places, Media has already gotten there and given a misinterpretation uh, of who we are and, and, and why is that gap. Say, for instance, when I was doing a mural, uh, student-driven in uh, Ethiopia, we are in the rural hills of Ethiopia, and I saw a hut up on a hill, and on the front of the door was a poster of Tupac. Of all the things that I thought I would see in that part of uh, Ethiopia, I was amazed to see that that influence of our youth has reached the backwoods of all over the world. Wow. Uh, let me ask Christopher this, though. Christopher, in your interactions with the Zambian students, uh, you said that there were some preconceived ideas on both sides. What were they? Yeah, there absolutely was. I mean, um, you know, I think that just like Mr. Cunningham said, there's, there's uh, the media – has a lot of stereotypes that pushes a certain narrative, you know, um, uh, for American students, we usually look at African students and think that they are, you know, all in, in grass skirts or, in, you know, have lions right outside of their, their homes and things of that sort, you know, the, the usual UNICEF, uh, preconceived notions that we have of the whole continent of Africa. Uh, similarly, African students, look to African-American students and they think that we are all in, in gangs, uh, thugs, uh, you know, basketball players, things of that sort. So, you know, their stereotypes are there for a reason to, to keep us divided, um, to keep us misunderstanding each other, you know, and that's why these programs are important because it exposes us to a different reality that we're not used to. Well, how long did it take for you to figure out that, you know, what what they've been teaching you about Africa is a lie. How long did you figure it out that they, you guys have the same hopes, dreams, and interests as the African students in Lusaka? No, that's a great question. Um, I mean, honestly, personally, I feel like my my journey in self discovery really began in, in middle school. I think that my first big eye opener for me was realizing, you know, we're taught that Abraham Lincoln was, you know, uh, the great emancipator. And that he, you know, basically he cared for African-Americans, um, you know, so that's why he passed the Emancipation Proclamation. And when I learned that he really was 
did not care to free any Africans at all. Um, you know, and more of the history behind that, the choice that he made, I think that that led me down the path of learning more about the history that uh, our, of our schools had, you know, neglected to really share. And I think that that's you know, important to have those contexts and nuances in history. Um, and, you know, going to Zambia, I was really excited. And when I learned about some of the stereotypes, my first time there, and I must say my second time is really when I got to dive even deeper into that and really make my own observations um, that I wasn't able to make the second time. Um, you know, it just it just really taught me the importance of representation in the media, and not only representation, but ownership, which is something that uh, Mr. Cunningham talks about a lot when we were in uh, the African Culture Club together. And, you know, I think that there needs to be more opportunities for us to collaborate so that we can understand each other in our communities. Yeah, 25 after the top of the hour. And James, let me ask you this, because, you know, you, you've been in the education business all your life, and you've seen the changes. And, and we see now a lot of our schools, inner-city schools, are just failing our children. Do you think if they had more exchange programs with African states, African, this will help, you know, lift lift, lift them up? Because, you know, we've, we've been taught that we are nothing and we're not going anywhere. And some of us embrace those negative uh, attributes that they, they, th- they thrust on us, whether it's the media, whether it's the school system. And because we can't see outside the box because that's all we know. Do you think if we, if we could embrace the travels like you did with Christopher taking him to Zambia and, and showing how, how other students, are, 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 you know, how they're, what are they, how they're doing and how they're improving. They don't have these uh, cultural impediments uh, blocking them that you can't, you can only be this, you can only be a thug or something to that extent. Do you think that would work for, for our, our students right now in school? I think it would more than work and complement what we're trying to do to uplift them. Um, one of the things that we I didn't have an opportunity to mention is when we go to these different countries, and that we're uh, not just taking one or two students, we're taking nine teachers and 22 students or more. So it, it's a process. And before students actually get to, to travel, and if they engage in the Learn Serve program, they are, they're given the opportunity to create self-sustaining projects on a social entrepreneur level. And um, well, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I got to ask you, because you mentioned you took teachers. So uh, were the teachers surprised or any, of the, the system? Because, you know, their system is their system. Over here, our system is, is quote unquote, the other folks' system. Were, were they surprised about in the differences of the, the technique of the styles that the African teachers use? They were more than surprised. Imagine a teacher on the continent will have a classroom of 100 or more students per class. And the salaries are not that um, impressive, but they do what they do out of love and understanding that learning is one of the most motivating keys you can put in the child's mind. Now, our students, once they got there, understand that everything you see looks like you. That in and of itself is amazing. And I got to ask Christopher this because, you know, we've seen reports, we've seen them all the time about, you know, schools here, urban schools here. Some of our, our students, they want to fight the teachers. And we keep hearing about stuff like that. Uh, they, they just, it's like they just don't want to be in, in the classroom. They don't, they don't want to learn. Did you see that in Zambia? No, I did not see that in Zambia. Um, honestly, I think that you know, um, 
education kind of means something different uh, on the continent and especially in the communities that we've been working with. Um, you know, education is seen more as an opportunity to uh, escape those conditions, you know, and to, to level up. And I think that, um, you know, not to say that there are not students in our, you know, inner cities that don't feel the same way. I definitely don't don't want to say that, but I just, I do think that, you know, the role models that we have here in the U.S. Uh, for our young, for our young black students um, or students of color within these, uh, you know, inner city schools, I think that they usually think as school is something that's keeping them from achieving their dreams, and that they could, you know, do it themselves outside of school. Yeah, uh, let me just share this with you. Thirty minutes after the top of the hour, uh, late Congressman Mervyn Dimley out in California is also with a, a, a deputy. Uh, governor or vice governor, whatever it is, he was second in, in, in uh, as, as far as the governorship was concerned. But one of the things that he kept telling me, he says, you've got to keep pushing our people to get educated. Education is the key. As long as they keep us in the dark, we'll never fi- figure it out for ourselves. You've got to keep, and he kept, every time, you, I'm telling you now, you got to tell our people they got to get educated. I see too many of our people fooling around, our young people in schools, and they're not going to make it because the, the other folks, they've, they've got a place for them to put them. You got to keep pushing our, our, our people to keep their students, their children in schools, push them all the way. Because sometimes it's all they need. It's a little push, a little someone to show some interest. So, James, I wanted you to talk about that. Is that something that we have to do continually? Because the other folks, it seems like instinctively they're going to high school and they know they're going to college. Here we have that most of our people who are going to college in our community are young women. The girls, the sisters are going to college more than the brothers. Seventy percent of the graduates on our university level are women. And that in itself is a challenge because if we cannot meet each other educationally and academically, we'll never pull together. And with the upcoming season of Kwanzaa, the best gift that any parent can give to their child, in my estimation, is a passport. Once mm. they're given an opportunity to actually put your foot on homeland and develop an idea exchange with other people. And we just don't go to Africa. We also go to Paraguay, Jamaica, and other countries. Once they begin to see that the things in books actually exist, but in another realistic way, and you see now the pull towards uh, critical race theory, no, what, they, what we're dealing with is critical race reality. There is a you know, fear I, that they want to uh, revise history, and in doing that, uh, before, they yeah. Want before to we go into that. that, yeah. Before we go into that, though, you just said something. At seventy, seventy, seven zero percent of the college graduates in the black community are women. Yes. Wow. I don't. I don't know if that was sort of glossed over by folks who are listening to that. What does that mean for for the brothers? Are they if the sisters are going to school and graduating? At a seventy percent more percentage rate than than the brothers, what's what does it look like for our future? Whether it's audiobooks or all time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob two hundred milligrams at kisqali dot com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. 
So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It looks kind of bleak, but it is not impossible to change. That's why when I initially talked uh, at the beginning of the program, I said we need to re- rethink the mission statement of how we're dealing with our young people, men and women, and get them to be more critical in their assessment of how the world is moving around us. And believe me, it is moving. Uh, that's right. It's not waiting for us. And and, and Christopher, it, it, do you see that on, on campuses when you were in college? Did you see that most of the, the black students were, were, were uh, women? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, yeah. It's funny because, you know, Ms. Kanaan talk about this a lot, but, uh, you know, I was one of the only black men that was in our African culture club in high school. And then carrying over when I went to Temple University, um, yeah, absolutely. There was a lot more black women in our classrooms. Um, especially in my Afrocology classes, uh, that there were, you know, black men. And I think that, you know, one interesting study as well that Stanford did is that when you have uh, ethnic students, they are much more likely to engage in the work that they're doing when they see them represented in the content. So, you know, absolutely, we can, you know, uh, try to push our students that education is the key, but we also need to make sure that our curriculums reflect the students that we're teaching, you know, because they need to know their history in medicine and mathematics and engineering, you know, Um, and that their only options aren't the ones that they only see on TV every day. There's a large extensive history that they're involved in and front and center of. And I think that um, if we are able to make sure that our curriculums reflect this to make them feel included, I think that we would see the results tenfold. Right. Uh, 26 away from the top there. We're going to take another quick break. But we're not saying that the college is the panacea for all the problems facing the black community. We only have 70 percent of this black students uh, are women and 30 percent are brothers. So, uh, Christopher, when you come back, those brothers who were not going to college, are they telling you why and what are they doing? I'll let you explain that after we check the news, traffic and weather in our different cities. So we'll be back in four minutes with James Cunningham, one-time teacher of the year in Washington, D.C. And one of his uh, students, Christopher Cole, is with us. So hit us up at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls right here in four minutes in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB in the DMV on FM. 95.9 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL or information is power. Hey, good morning again, family. 20 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest, James Cunningham, a former teacher of the year in Washington, D.C. One of his students, Crystal Cole, is with us as well. We're talking about education this morning. You want to join in? Reach out to us at 800 450 7876. Your phone calls are coming up later. But before we go back to them, though, let me just remind you coming up uh, later this morning, we're going to speak with Dr. Tyreen Wright. She's written a book on Booker T. Washington, Booker T. Washington, The Making of a Pan Africanist. Many of you did not know, probably did not know, that Booker T. was a Pan Africanist. Also, before we get to uh, uh, 
Dr. Wright, though, we're going to speak with Charlotte Dennett. Charlotte says her dad was the first master spy in the so-called Middle East, and she has a different perspective on the conflicts in Ukraine and Gaza. We're going to hear about that. And later this week, we're going to be joined by a Pan-African educator, Dr. Kemet Shockley. Dr. Sebi's son, Abdul, will be here. Also, Attorney Malik Shabazz will also join us as well. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight, real tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, run FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, Christopher, before we left for the news, traffic, and weather update, my question to you was, what are you, some of the brothers that you know that uh, elected not to go to uh, further education, what are they doing and what are the reasons they're telling you? Yeah, so I feel like, um, and you know, I also want to shout out Baltimore. That's where I was born. Uh, my father, my father's family is from Baltimore. Um, definitely have a long relationship with the school and the public education system there as well. Um, but, you know, I think that a lot of the, the students uh, that I connected with during my time in college that, that decided not to pursue college, um, you know, really just were, didn't really feel connected, didn't really feel seen, uh, or could really put together their place in that education system. I think that they saw themselves uh, a lot differently, and a lot of them, you know, when you when you get out of high school and you finally have that opportunity to get out of high school and you get some money, um, you know, a lot of times um, in those jobs, you know, you feel like that's going to be your next foot forward because you already have money in your pocket, you know. Um, and I think that if we are able to help them understand their place in that education system and the significant impact it can have on their lives moving forward, I think that we could, you know, definitely see more of an impact in terms of their presence in those spaces as well. But, you know, it's important that we emphasize the leadership potential that they have and the, the development that they can have in, in terms of uh, really being able to stay committed. But, you know, at the same token, college is expensive, right? And a lot of times, you know, when you have that money in your pocket, that may be an idea that they want to return back to college. But, you know, that idea gets pushed back further and further as the terms of as the tolls of life take their effect. So um, I think that that's inevitably, I would say, you know, a lot of them did have aspirations to go back to school. Um, and I think that in their pursuit to, to get money for the time being, it, it, it pushed those goals back further and further. Yeah. So well, what are they know, doing, though? If, James, before you ch- chime in, what are they doing, though, Christopher, since they're not going to, pursuing higher education? What are they doing with their lives? What do they do? Yeah. Yeah. So some of them are uh, focused on creative. Uh, aspects, you know, uh, a lot of them like are turned into tattoo artists, um, have, you know, tried their hand in making music. Uh, some of them have, um, done things that work with, you know, automobiles and have decided to go to a vocational training school, uh, get their, you know, certificates in HVAC, you know, have their, have their opportunities to work and, uh, motorized vehicles. Uh, things of that sort, uh, things of that sort, and jobs like those. So I would say that that is, uh, you know, mostly where we see a lot of our black men today. I mean, you know, I can I can think of many of my friends from D.C. to Baltimore, um, and, and even in Philadelphia, you know, who have kind of, uh, you know, fit in those lines, you know, in the service industry um, because it's quick. It's quick money, you know, that they feel like they can, you know, use to make a living and move forward. So, but sometimes when you when you're stuck in roles like that, um, you know, or you, you work in those type of industries for a long time, your resume starts to, uh, you know, only reflect that and not the other skills that they have. Um, so I feel like that's... Uh, that's uh, yeah. Uh, so, James, you wanted to say something? Go ahead. 
In D.C., it's a very unique situation because there's a thing called D.C. tag. Every student that graduates from D.C. public schools has an opportunity to get $10,000 a year towards higher education. And when you put that together with other grants and opportunities that are available, and some people don't need to start in a four-year institution, you can get a uh, two-year degree from a junior college. But that enhances the possibility of you doing other things. And at the same time, your first teacher is your parent. Your second teacher is the community. Then the school and other services come in to complement the efforts. But the main responsibility of a parent is to prepare our young people to have to be captives of their own destiny. All right. Hi, I'm fellas. At 14 away from the top there. Dante is joining us on line three, calling from Baltimore. Good morning, Dante. Good morning. Good morning, fellas. Um, I'm, I'm honored to speak to you guys, and, and thank you for, for what you guys are doing for the, for the community. Um, I, I run a, 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 a business called Immaculate Car Deals, where we educate black people on finance and auto buying and stuff like that. What we need in our schools, sixth grade, uh, I would say sixth grade because that's kind of when I went AWOL, and most guys went AWOL. We need more like how I had in college a guidance counselor. That would be a perfect idea to allow kids to be able to go to assemblies on um, on Mondays or Tuesdays, whatever day they choose, to give them a career of someone like myself that makes six figures. But I only drive trucks. I don't even have a college degree. But they don't know that. You know, you can't leave it up to the parents nowadays because a lot of the parents aren't even in the right loop themselves. So, unfortunately, if the school is going to have your children for eight hours or or four hours, how long does the school take? Give them the guidance for the careers that they can go into that are sometimes not as hard to get into, but at least they have an idea for a career. Like I said, even with their CNA, GNA program, this is by design. They've set this up to make sure that these kids don't have um, programs to get carpentry degrees and not degrees, but certifications and things of that nature, as opposed to like the gentleman was just saying, a four year college. That's that's one thing. But nowadays you can get a certification in six months to a year that can knock all of the four year college stuff out. Not that they don't need the education. A lot of kids just want something that's going to happen right now. So, again, I just say that in reference to giving them the pro- and, and, and financial literacy is one of the biggest things that even my mom, 60 plus years old, doesn't have financial literacy. And nor do young guys that I talk to, 22, 23, they don't know how to um, invest in a life insurance policy that saves taxes on the money that they put up. They have no idea about that stuff. I went to I went to private school, but I didn't learn all this. It's, it's just about what you want in life. But our, our, our younger guys and young ladies now are kind of caught up in the hip-hop culture. And hip-hop culture is not teaching us anything. So, again, I just say in elementary school, preferably middle school, sixth grade, start educating them on careers that they can go into, start making sure that almost every young guy comes out with a, a form of carpentry, knowing how to put drywall up. That's what the Spanish people, they're, they're destroying our, our younger community in a sense. There are no jobs for them. It's not their fault, the Spanish. It's not their fault. It's just the reality that they've been taught those labor jobs, which are the jobs that are paying nowadays. Last point, the biggest boom that we missed as black people, Joe Biden said he was putting all this money towards rebuilding the roads and the highways. 
if we had any common sense, we would have went out and opened up LLCs in reference to doing um, construction, cleanup, um, even guiding the traffic. That would have been a ton of money going into the black communities if we had just a little bit of inkling of common sense to know opening up these businesses and things like that. So that's why I say I'll try my best to educate as much as I can, but we need to start at a younger age letting them know what careers to go into. Appreciate you letting me talk, man. Thanks, Dante. You, you want to respond to anyone? All righty. Uh, anyone you want to respond to what Dante just said? Well, I agree with a, a number of the things that he said, but I would take it even a step further. I was t- starting at elementary school. One of the things we have to embrace is the fact that we are lifelong learners. And when we begin to uh, attach our efforts to the minds of young people at an earlier age, then you begin to get that, that, that concept of what can possibly be in your life. And the other thing is we need more male teachers in the classroom. When I made the comment of 70% of the uh, graduates from, on the university level are women, 70%, 70 to 75% of educators are women, and they're white women. That's, that's, that's frightening. It, it, having said that, though, uh, the, the, you mentioned that 70% of the uh, college students uh, are sisters. What fields are they going into? Are they going into the counseling? Are they going into educational fields, uh, James? Um, they're going into every field of endeavor, and they're going into education. My daughter, <clears throat> excuse me, just finished her um, master's at Florida International University, and now she's teaching. And she was a part of the uh, LearnServe program. She was also a part of uh, Semester at Sea, for, stu- for those who don't know about that. There is a way of using the money and grants that you get going into a four-year institution that you can flip it to do other things. The um, Semester C program my daughter was engaged in, she, she uh, was able to study on a cruise ship 110 days, 18 countries, 16 cities. The year that she went, the uh, educational program semester C followed the transatlantic slave trade. So imagine the impact, in addition to having traveled in high school, that that had on her. And now, and, she, and you know, I'm I was just going to say because those are the students that are uh, aware, that, or, or you know, better chance we're woke, as, as folks will say. But then we have so many who are not, who are asleep, who don't understand that, and so they never make that first step. Uh, James, what do we do with those those children? And that's where that exposure piece comes in. And I said, take it back to elementary school, because I don't right. know, I know uh, Chris doesn't know this, but. Learn Serve originally started with taking students from junior high school. The high school piece came in later. And there are opportunities out there, but we have to believe in the fact that it's not going to come to you if you stand still. You have to be progressively moving forward. And don't take no for an answer. Yeah, that's great advice for any endeavor. You know, just you can't. You got to keep moving and, and and never, never, never take no for an answer. Keep on. You just can't be defeated. Uh, Chris, we're coming up on a break. Well, I want to ask you though this when we get back. What are your plans now that you've been exposed to this? You've you've seen, uh, you've 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 went to different countries. You've been exposed to uh, different modes of of learning, and you see what you see what what's out there. You can see what you can achieve. You you've already you know 
glanced at the future. Many of our, our young people, unfortunately, as you mentioned, they've never left you know, their, their, their environment, their, their 10 blocks here, area. You've got students who have told me they've never even left. As small as Washington, D.C. has never been to Maryland or Virginia. They never even left the district. So, And that goes, and that's just not a put down on, on those students because that happens in every major city. You know, folks, they just stay in their little radius and, and their mentality is in with whatever they learn or know was, is in that radius. But you manage to escape. So I want to know what your future looks like. And I'll, I'll let you explain to us when we come back from the short break. We've got to check the traffic and weather in our different cities. It's six minutes away from the top of the hour. We'll be back in four minutes, though, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. Good morning again, family. At the top of the hour with our guest, James Cunningham, former teacher of the year in Washington, D.C., and one of his students, Christopher Clough, is with us as well, discussing education. Uh, before we left for the news, traffic, and weather update, I was uh, asking Christopher what his plans are. But before we do that, though, John is calling from Atlanta and has a comment or a question for you, brothers. He's on line three. Good morning, John. Hey, good morning, Carl. How y'all doing? I'm good, and you? I'm doing well. You know, I think the focus is really should be on these parents. I mean, I've listened to Carl. I've listened to a lot of people. And I think it doesn't matter what kind of programs we have. These parents somehow are not making the connection between education and, and success for our, for our young African-American kids. Every other ethnic groups, including black foreign are making that education, and the proof is in the pudding. And so we can't talk about all kinds of social things. These parents are just not investing in their kids. we got to stop giving them a pass, man. We have to stop giving them a pass. All right. Uh, and, 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 James, so you, you, uh, you're a parent, so I'll let you respond to that. Is it really the parents' fault? Because it, some you, you, you don't know what you don't know. How can you teach what you don't know? But, John, I thank you for your call. That's an interesting comment. James? Uh, he's, he's absolutely right. And I do have a son and a daughter, and they both got in their advanced degrees. They both hold masters, and they're in, uh, my son is in higher education. My daughter is in international education. And they learn from seeing my wife and I take them to different events. We constantly kept their feet moving, and we demanded excellence from them. We understood that and told them that everybody fails, but that does not mean that's your permanent station in life. You can learn more from how a person loses than how they win. And Yeah, um, but it goes... But, but you know, it goes, James goes back to if if the parents don't know how can, how can they teach? That's why they have to step outside their comfort zone. Also, I'll give you an excellent case in point. When I was teaching at Dunbar, I began to notice that with all of the educators, well, all of the talent that we had in D.C., the two Amosia study group, Francis Crest Welding, Tony Broder, I began to bring them into the classroom. And I challenged students to, we're going to meet with Francis Crest Welding today. And we did at Dunbar in the band room. Band room fits 250 people. So I told them, you bring someone of like mind. 
there's someone I want you to meet and talk to. Got in contact with Francis. She came. She, she was going to stay for an hour. She ended up staying for four hours. And that's not only dedication on her part and the students, but it was also a dedication of the administration to allow students to see that this is what's important. My first experience really becoming engaged with the African community and culture when I was at Eastern High School. Uh, the principal at the time walked through the halls and would point at different students. You, go up to room 325. You, you, you. I want you to go up there, and I'm up, I'll be there in three minutes to make sure you showed up. And when we got into the room, because we respected him and his opinion, guess who was sitting in the room? It was the Black Panther Party and the Black Man's Development Group. He started thinking outside the box, and even the male of the female principals I had coming up, they were giving us not just education, they were giving us education plus. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think it's a generational thing? Because, you know, you're a different generation. These, these younger parents now don't know what we know. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, I think it's a combination of both, but that does not mean we cannot bring, we can't bring the past forward. Because everybody has a base. And our base is our families, the grandmothers, grandfathers, and those individuals in your community. If we do an inventory of what we have, and some people say, well, we don't have anything. Yes, you do. You have you. All right. And once Five we sit down and make that assessment, then we can start creating our own blueprint for success. Yeah, but uh, the problem is acute because we see it in the results of our students. You know, our students are failing uh, across the board. You know, we keep mentioning uh, uh, Baltimore. Well, it's not just Baltimore, man. It's Detroit, New York, L.A., uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, the system is not working for our students. And, and, and you know, a good point that John mentioned, the parents have a role to play. But Sister Fahima is joining us from Washington, D.C. She's on line three. Good morning, Sister Fahima. Yes, good morning, Mr. Nelson. Two points I want to mention. I agree with you wholeheartedly because at the same time you made the comment, I typed it. I texted to you. I've been uh, for about 20 years. This is this fall makes 20 years that I've been a professor at an HBCU. And um, you're absolutely right. You don't know what you don't know. All of the parents are not middle class. In the state of Maryland, you have children who are homeless. The crack epidemic did 
a devastating in, impact on us. You have kids who were in, were in foster care, kids whose parents may be addicted to drugs. And kids who are in foster care, how are you going to say that their parents need to make sure that they do this and that? You also had this situation with um, black males not graduating from college has been an issue for quite some time. Um, I know when I first started teaching, I might have had one or two male students, and now it has increased marginally. Many of the HBCUs have put in place initiatives like bridge programs and uh, black male initiatives. So the thing is, is that everybody's not coming from a middle-class family. There are people who have problems in our community, and sometimes those people who are more fortunate, as I said before, need to step up. You know, you have we have situations where kids are homeless, you know, and the thing is, if you haven't eaten and you don't know where you're going to sleep, you know, you're not sitting there ready to learn. I have a friend in Virginia, and I'm going to make it both of them graduated from an HBC. The husband died. The mother was a nurse. I just learned she just got evicted from her home. Fortunately, her son did graduate from high school, but, you know, she's living in a darn storage unit, and he went to stay with his sister. You know, people, you know, people have issues, real-life problems, and those of us who have gotten our degrees and are doing well, it's easy for us to speak from our place of privilege. But what we need to do is we need to step up and try to help those people who are a little less fortunate than us rather than looking down our noses at them. All right. Thanks, Sister Fahima. And before before you respond to that, James, a whole lot of that there, because in the interest of time, Sister Sarita wants to make a comment, too. I'll just let you respond to both comments, because our next guest is on deck, uh, Charlotte Dennett. So Sister Sarita is calling from L.A. She's on line four. Sister Sarita, you're on with James Cunningham and Krista Cole. Yes, uh, and I'll make it short, Carl. I'm an educator as well, and I agree with the sister that just, uh, Sister uh, Fatima, I agree with her. Um, But also, we have to, like she just said, and she actually took my my answer, my question and answer, but uh, we have to uh, address whatever could be going on with the child first um, before, like she said, expect the student to, um, because it's, it's, it's uh, learning also is a mental thing. And if my mental is not clear, then you can't expect me to learn. You know what I'm saying? And also, I know for me with my mom, she, mom slash grandmother, because she raised me born 1918, she, she would come up to the school when she couldn't understand uh, what it was that I was learning, the new math or whatever it was. She would literally come up to the school and ask the teacher, hey, can you explain this to me? And unfortunately, we have so many parents who are afraid to do that, embarrassed to do that. But I I say to you parents, please come up and ask questions, and I'll take my comments off the air. Thank you, Carl. All right. Thank you, Sister Sarita. All right, James or Christopher, you want to comment on those uh, two comments that we have, those two callers? Uh, if Chris doesn't want to address it, I'll be more than happy to. Go ahead. No, I, absolutely. I can um, I can address the first question. I think that, um, okay. you know, I agree. I think that, you know, there shouldn't be any type of looking down on our students. I mean, you know, I myself, I don't come from a middle-class household. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of the students that, you know, also went to school without walls with us. You know, not all of them students came from a middle-class household as well either. And it's important that, you know, you know, their parents are involved. And I think that, you know, a lot of times we're dealing with a variety of issues like we talked about. I mean, these issues aren't just 
basic to Baltimore, basic to D.C., right? They're basic, you know, you see them all across the U.S. And, um, you know, a lot of times uh, these students have to have some sort of, um, you know, motivation to do these type of things uh, within the school, outside of the school, like we've been talking about in these past 20 minutes. And I think that the real question is, you know, one, if we, if we want to have support for these students and we want people to give back, what exactly are we trying to set up so that we can? What's the best way that we can move forward so that these students are not only motivated, but continue to engage while they're in classrooms? Um, and I'm definitely open to more ideas than that. I think that, you know, for one, in my opinion, you know, we talk about how our education system isn't doing the job that it needs to do in terms of educating our students. So what are some after-school initiatives, some extracurricular activities that the community, um, you know, can create and control so that we are making sure that we are teaching them financial literacy, uh, their history, you know, things of that sort, different other, cert, uh, you know, opportunities to certifications like the other gentlemen that, that joined the call earlier. You know, I think that these are all great uh, solutions. I don't think that there's necessarily one answer or one size that fits all. I think that we definitely need to be all encompassing in terms of our approach to uh, a solution. So I'll, I'll hand it over to Mr. Cunningham, but I think that that's, that's where my head is right now. James, well, real the quick. Mere, well, the mere fact that I stayed in the educational system as long as I did, man, I was willing to make the sacrifice. And I didn't come from a middle-class family. But I understood the importance of us working together. And if we continue to have that mindset and if we just talk to each other in a respectful way, our young people will see that and they can move forward. All right. Uh, James and, and uh, Christopher, thank you guys for sharing all this information with us. James, so if people want more to discuss this further with you, how can they reach you? Do you have an email address? Uh, I'll leave something with your um person. Okay. You'll leave it with Kevin. Okay. All right. Yeah. Thanks, James. Uh, and thanks, Christopher. And, and congratulations, man, because you, you've made it out and you did well. But again, it's, 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 it's not a lifestyle thing. We have this discussion later on to folks. It's for all the folks who are holding or trying to get to you, brothers. We didn't get a chance to get to you because our next guest is on deck and we got to t talk to her after the break. But thank you again, James. And, and thank you again, uh, Christopher, as well. As I mentioned, we've got to step aside and get caught up on the latest traffic and weather in our different cities. We'll be back in four minutes with Charlotte Dennett. We're going to talk about what's going on in, in Gaza and what's going on also in Ukraine with Charlotte Dennett in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB, also in the DMV or on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, or information is power. Well, good morning again, family. Twin minutes after the top of the hour, and I'm joined by attorney Charlotte Dennis. Good morning, Charlotte. Hi there. Glad to be on the show. Yeah. And uh, uh, you have a different perspective on the conflict in Ukraine and Gaza. But before we get into that, I understand your dad was America's first so-called master spy in the, in the Middle East. Is that true? Absolutely. Yes, it is. He uh, was, can you tell um, us about that? Well, like many uh, academics, uh, <clears throat> he, he had been uh, uh, graduated from Harvard and then went into teaching and um Worcester, Massachusetts, Clark Clark University. He was plucked out of there um, because he had some expertise on the Middle East. In fact, he had um, 
taught at AUB, the American University of Beirut, fresh out of college, and all of his students were Middle Eastern. So, so he he grew to love the region and the people. And uh, so, in 1944, um, he was tapped to um, go to Lebanon, <clears throat> be the uh, cultural attaché. That's his cover. But actually, he was working for the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. And that's the first uh, U.S. Um, espionage organization at that time. And he goes in there, and uh, one of the things I found out uh, was that he wrote what's called an analysis of work, um, detailing what what his job's going to be. And he was head of count. He became head of counterintelligence, in other words, a spy, uh, spying on other spies. And one of these documents that I got after suing the CIA through FOIA has a lot of redactions, but they left out a line, I think by mistake, and it says, we must protect the oil at all costs. And what I've learned is that this becomes a, a sort of a meme that continues all the way up to the endless wars in the Middle East. Um, And I found this out by investigating the death of my father. Um, He'd been on a uh, top-secret mission to Saudi Arabia in uh, 1947, and his job was to look at the, um, the, the terminal point for the Trans-Arabian Pipeline. Um, this was a very big deal at the time, I learned. I, I saw there was a huge article in the New York Times on March 2, 1947, which describes the significance of this pipeline. It's, it's going to elevate uh, U.S. standing in the Middle East and, and would ultimately help make it a superpower, Saudi oil. So the question was, where would it terminate? And I found out that the two likely places were Haifa, Palestine, a, a port in Palestine developed by the British, uh, and um, or whether it would terminate in Lebanon. And uh, the more I dug into it, the more I understood that um, after the war, there was what my father called a free-for-all. In other words, any country that aspired to becoming a big power uh, coveted Saudi oil, and they were very jealous of the Americans who got the exclusive concession. And that is um, the the whole intrigue behind the pipeline. I found out after my father's death that um, uh, the oil companies, that that would be Standard Oil of California that had the concession. And Aramco, its company, was very upset that Syria would not allow the pipeline to go through um, the Golan Heights. And... The reason for this uh, was the Syrians at the time were very nationalistic, and they were frankly opposed to the creation of a state of Israel. So they saw that as a colonial enterprise, and they didn't want anything to do with it. So what happened is um, the CIA uh, planned a coup, and uh, they succeeded in 1949 to overthrow the regime of President Kuwatli, and they installed in his place a uh, a police chief who was 
sympathetic to Israel and was okay with a pipeline going through Syria. So that gives you just a touch of the, of the importance of um, pipelines and what a country will do to secure the oil. So I ended up writing this book called Follow the Pipelines, because what I found out is that in every major conflict, and, and now I'm skipping ahead to the post-9-11 uh, endless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, <clears throat> but they they're all um, have links to oil and pipelines. I mean, you can't talk about the Middle East without talking about oil. But the fact is, the media doesn't cover this angle doesn't cover the oil angle. I'm sure your listeners are not aware of the oil and natural gas uh, connection to Gaza, for instance. They, I mean, some may, but I imagine many don't, and it's not their fault. The, uh, the press, the mainstream media in particular, censors out any mention of oil, and there's a reason for it. It's the fuel of the military, right? Our military is the largest consumer of oil. And you can't run a military machine without oil. And they learned during World War One, World Two, World War Two, in um, Germany lost both its its uh, both wars. And the main reason is that its its tanks and its and its lorries uh, ran out of gas. So every power knows if you want to be in the running as a superpower, you absolutely have to control oil, and you have to control the distribution of oil through pipelines, and you've got to make sure that those pipelines are safe. So you have to send in military, and you send in military, but oftentimes you develop a pretext for doing that, and that's often the case because what mother would want to send her loved ones off to war if she knew it was about fighting for oil and the profits of oil company. So there's always a pretext to get people uh, or soldiers ginned up about going into war. Now I've gone, I've, I've run on. <laughs> you, you may want to interrupt <laughs> no, me right now. Right, right, right. Because uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about Gaza first because we've, and we've had this discussion before on this program about the, the uh, oil in Gaza. Now, where is this oil? Is it between, is it off the Gaza Strip between Gaza and, and Egypt or is it somewhere else? Well, um, actually, the, uh, there's a, a a map in my book that shows exactly where it is. It is, in fact, off the coast of Gaza. I've I've heard recently there may be some underground in Gaza as well, but for sure, uh, there, there's a natural gas um, off the shore of Gaza. It was discovered in 2000. Arafat, the head of the Palestine Liberation Organization, was still in power, and <clears throat> he had control over both the West Bank and Gaza. So. The idea was that he, the uh, Arafat, the Palestinian Authority, same thing, uh, they were going to extract the oil and they would earn billions of dollars in royalties. And and Arafat at the time was thrilled and and said, "This this is going to finally allow us to have our own state and our own economic uh, ability to develop. And what happened is that uh, Netanyahu, was was opposed to that, and um, some some right wing generals as well. There was a Moshe Dalon who was is, became Israel's defense minister in 2013, but in 2007, 
uh, he was quoted as saying, um, you're, you're basically, you're crazy if you want to um, have the Palestinians control that oil. I, I, I doubt that it will um, trickle down to an impoverished pa- uh, Palestinian people, I'm quoting now. <clears throat> and uh, it's clear with he says, now get this, without an overall military operation to uproot Hamas's control of Gaza, no drilling work can take place without the consent of the radical Islamic movement. And that's a Jerusalem source. So one year later, Israelis forces launch Operation Cast Lead and with the aim of uh, sending Gaza decades into the past and making sure that Israel uh, gained sovereignty over the gas field in Gaza. In fact, it did not. So, um, but, it, but it would, in 2014, launch another uh, massive invasion of Gaza. And the idea was to uproot Hamas and ensure Israeli monop- monopoly over the gas fields. Uh, and that second um, incursion uh, killed 2,100 Palestinians, and three-quarters of them were civilians. So um, <clears throat> what, what we begin to well, see... Well, let me jump in and ask you this, though. Is, is that why Israel is saying they, you know, after the, claiming after the conflict is, is solved, they want to control and rule in Gaza? Is that, is that the issue there? Is that, is that you know, they, they claim they don't want to see Hamas rise again, but is that the real issue, that they want to control the oil, the pipelines? Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I, well, I believe it is. I think, you know, you you got to look at a little bit in, uh, into the historical context. And <clears throat> that always helps uh, solve a problem or a mystery. And uh, I, I, there was a great quote I came across once um, by a forensic pathologist uh, who, who stated, uh, Jan Lismith was his name, he stated, um, looking at facts in isolation, you're not going to get anywhere. But if you look back into the context the historical context, you will solve your problem or you will understand the origin of this war. And when we see it in the media, it's just about what's happening now. No mention of two previous attacks, no mention of, uh, that they were aimed to prevent the Palestinians from getting that that oil and, and natural gas. And then they discovered, the Israelis just discovered an even bigger uh, field off their coast. So they have they have ambitions to turn the whole eastern mediterranean into a um, energy corridor and we know that there's also a plan to develop a canal 
uh, to be named the Ben-Gurion Canal. He was the first president of Israel. And it was going to replace or actually compete with the Suez Canal. And it would run from the tip of Gaza south down down through Israel. And it would end it up in the Gulf of Aqaba uh, and the tip of sort of the tip of the Red Sea. So they're going to their goal is to develop a whole new shipping lane. And then uh, I I'm pretty certain of this, that they're also interested in running pipelines up the uh, the coast of the Mediterranean, and so so um, <clears throat> let's see. Netanyahu. Oh, let me here, uh, say this, yeah, because Dr. Gerald Horn was on uh, Monday yesterday, and he mentioned that about the canal who's going to compete with the Suez Canal, and that's part of the problem too. But my question to you is, and we come up on break. Does does Egypt? What's the role of Egypt in all this? Because the, the proximity to Gaza is right there. They're doing all this. You talked about the pipelines, the drilling, the canal. What is Egypt saying? Is Egypt going along with all of this, or, or are they breaking from their Arab uh, uh, colleagues and, and supporting uh, uh, Israel on this? And I'll let you respond to that after we take this short break. We got to take a check the tra- news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. Folks, you want to join this uh, this conversation with Attorney Charlotte Dennett? Reach out to us at eight hundred. 450-7876 and we'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB also in the DMV we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL or information is power And good morning again, family. 20 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest, Attorney Charlotte Dennett. She's got a, a different perspective. Some of you have heard of some of these things before on what's going on in Ukraine and also in Gaza. We were talking about Gaza. She's, she's written it in a book called Follow the Pipelines. Before we go back to it, let me just remind you, coming up later this morning, I'm going to speak with Attorney uh, Tyreen Wright, her book on, on Booker T. Washington. And also later this week, we're going to hear from educator Dr. Kemet Shockley, Dr. Sebi's son, Abdul, will join us, and Attorney Malik Shabazz will also be here. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. I'll say, okay, Attorney Dan, back to my question before we left for the news, traffic, and weather update. Egypt, what's Egypt doing and all this was going on in Gaza now? Now that we, it's, well, it's been exposed. Some people have known before about the, the oil, the reserves, uh, billions on, in untapped oil between Gaza and Egypt. What's Egypt's role in all of this? Well, Egypt uh, w- wants to cooperate uh, with with Israel. I should say wanted um, <clears throat> because uh, they've been talking about deals of, of uh, piping some of the natural gas to Egypt, for instance. And uh, so uh, Egypt is watching this, this Gaza situation very, very carefully because it has a um, – you know, a complicated relationship both with Gazans and with Israel. Um, the thing that Egypt wants more than anything else is stability. So um, one thing that it is not allowing Israel to do is to um, take in, you know, tens of thousands of Palestinians. And I find I found that really going back in history in Lebanon, where I was a reporter <clears throat> in the 1970s, um Egypt was uh not Egypt but Lebanon really did not like having Palestinian refugees in Lebanon and 
I'm sorry I'm hesitating because I just woke up. <laughs> anyway, the Israelis are uh, invaded Lebanon. And um, so after doing that, during the Civil War, 15-year Civil War and 100,000 um, people were killed during that war, the Lebanese Civil War. But anyway, the the whole point of that civil war really was to get rid of the Palestinians. And the Palestinians had flooded into Lebanon, and they, they had also flooded into Egypt. And Egypt doesn't want any more of them, and that's why it was reluctant to uh, open the gates, so so to speak, uh, to, to allow people to, you know, Palestinians, but mostly foreigners, to pass through. Um, so it just it doesn't want them. So it's in the predicament. Meanwhile, um, all the Arab countries are now furious at what's happened in Gaza. Um, You know, the U.S. has been trying to broker peace relationships with other Arab countries and had actually had succeeded under Trump um, through the Abraham Accords. Uh, to develop better relationships with uh, mostly Gulf countries, which which are not as closely connected to the Palestinian crisis. But the Arab street overall, Muslims overall, are are furious about um, Israel's um, disproportionate, shall we say, attack on Gaza. Um, Their their feeling is there's no excuse uh, for it and Egypt, so is in a very tricky position. It's it's allowing uh, food to go in, and um, some people who are stuck in Gaza, mostly mostly foreigners, to come out through Egypt. But it doesn't want it doesn't want a war. It doesn't want the war expanding, and most uh, Arab countries don't want the war expanding. But by the same time, they had their ears to the ground, and the Arab street is b- beside itself in this this slaughter. And it, it, you know, I see it as an attorney. It, this is genocide. This, it is the it is the um, actual definition of the word when a particular people is singled out for annihilation, and their homes, and they aren't given food, and now the the hospitals have to you know, close up. This is astounding. And, um, you know, Egypt is is appalled. So any ties it had with Israel may be broken at this point. It's hard to say. What I think yeah. the, the, the end run, the end game in all of this is they want the West and Israel do want to develop these this infrastructure, uh, including pipelines and the canal. But you can't do it as long as there's unrest, because no financial institution will support such a project if if there's a lot of conflict going on. So this is just a hypothesis uh, that the end game for the U.S. and for Israel is developing this whole energy corridor. And so, um, you know, if civilians are caught in the way, um, well, that's unfortunate. And they give lip service to trying to help the civilians. But if you watch on TV, it's just a nightmare. It's a horror what's going on. So the the civilians are just collateral damage then, basically, what's going on, because it's all about oil, right? 
Well, that's what I think, yes. But yeah. but you're not going to see it in the media. Uh, it's considered a national security issue. So you don't know about this angle. But, you know, people are sort of scratching their heads and saying, what does Netanyahu want? What's the end game here? And, uh, of course, he's also sort of like Trump. He doesn't want to go to jail. He's uh, indicted for crimes. And this this whole thing happened when he was at a low point, when there were lots of um, unrest in Israel itself. As you may have seen, it went on for, for days, huge demonstrations against Netanyahu's plan to um, change the uh, judiciary and weaken the judiciary. And I believe... Uh, that's because uh, one of his goals is to get control over the West Bank. He wants that. Uh, and there may be oil under the West Bank. Um, there have been discoveries of oil in, in Golan Heights. So, you know, for, for decades, Israel was energy dependent on other countries, mostly upon the United States, I might say, for military and uh, economic development. But now it's discovering finally that it has oil. And so it's doing everything it can do to, quote unquote, protect the oil at all costs. That's what my father wrote in 1944 before he was sent over to Lebanon. And um, one of the things I do in my book in Follow the Pipelines is I examine the costs. And the costs are incalculable. How many wars have been fought in the Middle East? How many people have died? Uh, the Lebanese Civil War, 100,000 people died. In Gaza, already we've got 12,000 and and over 4,000 children. This is unacceptable. The whole I think most of the world feels that way. And the Biden administration is caught in a, uh, a vice that, that, on the one hand, uh, the United States has always been... Uh, supportive of Israel. And Biden declared that at the outset of the uh, Hamas uh, attack on October 7th. Um, but what, what, he, what he found in, in supporting Israel in its um, subsequent revenge attacks against Gaza is that he, he has trouble having total control over Netanyahu. And he sees that this has gone too far. Uh, but he can't come out and recommend a uh, ceasefire. And you have to ask yourself, who is influencing him on this? And we don't really know. But I suspect yeah. that there's no way he can get around the influence of oil companies, for instance. They're extremely powerful. So right. we, uh, right. Hold the thought there, because I want to ask you about uh, Ukraine, because we're racing the clock 11 away from okay. the top of the hour family. Okay. Uh, Charlotte sure. Dennett, attorney. So Ukraine, tell us what's, what's going on with Ukraine. Okay, Ukraine. You see, they're all connected. Um, I started looking at Ukraine uh, when I found out that uh, the United States was, was opposed to um, a Nord Stream pipeline that would take Russian oil and natural gas to Germany and then have it distributed throughout Europe. And um, leading up to the Russian invasion, uh, the U.S. administration was also uh, very much against the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. It would run parallel uh, under the Baltic Sea 
with the Nord Stream 1, and it would have, if it had gone online, it would have de- uh, developed even more oil uh, to Europe. And so what we saw, of course, is the first sanction that the U.S. Um, issued uh, against Russia was to get Germany to sort of back out of of having the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline come online. And that's caused a lot of uh, problems for the allies. A lot of European countries are worried another winter's coming, and they're worried they're not going to get enough natural gas. The Russian natural gas was, was cheap. And now there's been this desperate search for other sources. I would say even uh, they're looking at Israel to, to somehow um, pipe gas to, to Europe, or, or at least take it on tankers, I should say that. Um, it's all interconnected. It's all, it's all about the uh, great game for oil. Uh, Ukraine has the second largest number of reserves of oil and natural gas in all of Europe. Uh, the first one is uh, Russia, if you consider it now part of Europe. But um, so even before the invasion, there were American oil companies keenly interested in developing Ukraine's oil and natural gas. And where is most of it? The richest amounts, eastern, uh, eastern Ukraine. That's where all the fighting is going on. And um, so... And, and I know for sure that even under the Obama administration, they were um, querying about how this oil could be developed. So, um, and of course, the Ukrainian company that was most, uh, let's say, influential in in looking at this idea was called Burisma. Burisma, which I think your listeners may have be familiar with that. Um, and Burisma, of course, is where um, Hunter Biden was put on the board for a while. Anyway, so uh, it's the largest oil and gas uh, company uh, in in Ukraine. So that's what's going on. These, I, I feel really terrible for the Ukrainian people because I I just see them as caught in a petro power um, or a proxy war, and they're they're the ones that are bearing the brunt. I mean, yes, the Russian invasion uh, was uh, illegal against a sovereign territory, but once again, you got to look at the whole complex uh, conflict uh, in a context. And what we find, uh, and many of your listeners may be aware of this, is that there were continued encroachments closer and closer to uh, Russia, <clears throat> and Russia warned that it wouldn't accept this. And uh, when, the, when the NATO countries continued to, to um, sort of expand into uh, Ukraine, wanted to at any event, and, and set up military bases closer and closer to Russia, uh, you know, uh, Putin finally said, that's it, we're going to war. And to me, I, I, I look at it as a plague on all their houses, and it's unfortunate. The, the military machines rely on oil, and as long as that happens, you're going to have these struggles. I, I would even say that, that once you take oil out of the equation, you're going to find 
peace in the Middle East and elsewhere. Then the war is going to be over Lithian, I suspect, and I don't know how bitter that's going to get. But anyway, hold that thought right there, uh, Attorney Dan. We got to take a short break again. We got to check the traffic and weather in our cities. I'll let you finish that thought on the other side. Six minutes away from the top there. We'll be back in four minutes with Attorney Charlotte Dennett right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. Good morning again, family. Minute right after the top of the hour, Attorney Charlotte Dennett. We're racing the clock here. But the interesting that she's talking about what's going on in Gaza and what's going on in Ukraine. She put it in a book, Follow the Pipeline. But as we run out of time, a bunch of folks with questions for you, uh, Attorney Dennett. And Kosi's calling from Chicago. And Kosi, can you make your question real quick? I'm sorry. Sure. I didn't hear. What do you want me to do? Uh. No, just hold on a second. I got a, someone's got a question for you, real quick. Sure. Calling from Chicago. Yeah. Kosi, real quick. I, I don't trust the mass media uh, emphasizing climate change, but not emphasizing the oil uh, power struggle. What does this mean as far as changing to renewable energy sources uh, as a, a mass movement around the planet? Okay. Well, um, my answer to that is. Uh, Unfortunately, the drilling is continuing, and uh, it's happening, I believe, in the North Sea. It's happening in Alaska, um, uh, and Biden had to uh, remove restrictions on um, developing oil in government-owned areas. It's just a a horrific problem. I mean, the the world leaders know that climate change poses a huge problem. And um, so they are trying to forge ahead with alternative energy. And there is that. It's going ahead, but some of it has been stalled. And instead, um, you're seeing a resumption of drilling. You're seeing new explorations. They can't get out of this addiction. It, it's just we're watching a tragedy. And my feeling is that um, if we look at the Middle East, from a geopolitical perspective, and we we try to understand the history and the role of oil in all of these conflicts, then why not um, have the people that have been so affected by these wars uh, stop hating each other? Because that's a divide and rule um, tactic that is often used. By by governments, divide and rule, and uh, still let's let's just look at who is ultimately responsible for these horrendous conflicts. And we already know that um, they know the oil companies have even admitted that they knew about the uh, role of fossil fuel emissions uh, in creating climate change. They lied about it. They finally had to come clean. But here we are. I mean, if this is still going on, uh, the drilling continues at this rate, uh, our planet is, is, is really vulnerable now. And um, who knows where it's all going to end up, because even, even the very wealthy people are affected by climate change. There's just got to be a reckoning that um, fossil fuels have, have, yes, they've contributed a lot, but they've also contributed a lot of suffering in the world. And um, I would like people to, to consider that angle. 
Right. And, and Dr. Attorney Dennett, we got to cut it right there because Dr. Tyree Wright, our next guest is up. But we want to continue this conversation with you, if you don't mind. And somebody sent me a note here, the Washington Post this morning, and you can check it out. Forbidden Russian oil flows into Pentagon supply chain. This underscores what you've been telling us this morning. It's got so many questions to ask you, like what, what's it mean for, for the Saudis, their role as well, their, their coziness with Donald Trump? What will this mean for the world right. if Donald Trump gets reelected we, we talk <laughs> the BRICS nations China China's role as well China's a, a she's a, in in San Francisco meeting with Biden tomorrow there's so many questions you want to ask so I, I, hopefully if you don't mind if you come back uh, uh, later sometime later and, and just fill us in on because on, you seemingly have a grasp of what's going on with these uh, these uh, these uh conflicts in Ukraine and also in, in the Gaza. So I hope you don't mind coming back later on and filling us in, because you've been really connecting the dots for us this morning. Well, I, I, I would be happy to. Um, yeah, sure. Anytime, Carl. But I appreciate the fact that, that you have an open mind and you are allowing information to come out. And as you say, information is power. And I'm telling folks, follow the pipelines. If you want to understand the history of all this Middle East conflict, you can follow the pipelines. That's my book. The subtitle is Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy, which would be my father, and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil. So just follow the pipelines. See, I've got 10 maps in there. Maps are like a a thousand words if you look at a map. And uh, then you'll get to understand it. And, And I say this. Um, urging folks uh, even to get a hold of this book because I want people to know this hidden history. Um, those of us who write Truth to Power, which I've done all my all my years also as an author, uh, we suffer from it. Our books get suppressed. Um, but it's, it's too important now for people to understand what's going on because we're at the brink of, of a nuclear annihilation or climate annihilation. It's a very serious time, and it's time for all of our our citizens to be informed. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So well said. How can we get copies of your book? Folks want to... Uh, you know, uh, get well, all this information. Frankly, uh, the easiest way is through Amazon. Um, my publisher is Chelsea Green. It's located in Vermont, where I am. But even they uh, prefer that people uh, order the book through Amazon because what Amazon does is it it'll bulk order, and then uh, those those books cannot be returned. So that's the publisher Chelsea Green's attitude. Get it from from Amazon, but also you can just call up your your local bookstore and they'll they'll order it if you ask for it. And it's also in uh, ebook. You know, you can audio oh, audiobook. Cool. They did a wonderful job, wonderful job in, in uh, doing that. So. 
There you go. Oh, great. Uh, thank you for connecting the dots this morning. We're going to have you back because there's so many unanswered questions. And this and, and what's going on in Ukraine and what's going on in Gaza is not going to go away in the next few weeks anyway. So we'll definitely have you back to finish connecting the dots. For Charlotte, uh, Danny, thank you. Brave, brave lady uh, writing you. this book, <laughs> exposing right. the secrets. Thank you very much. Okay. We'll see you later. All right. Yes, <laughs> we will. By uh, Charlotte Dennett, folks. She's an attorney. Her d- dad, she mentioned, was the first uh, master spy in the so-called Middle East. And that's how she got going through the freedom of information. She got all this information on what's going on in Gaza. And she's just calling it like it is, <laughs> you know, and what's going on in Ukraine and connecting the dots between both conflicts. This is this kind of information they don't want you to know. But anyway, having said that, at eight after the top of the hour, let's welcome Dr. Tyreen Wright to, to the program. Good morning, Dr. Wright. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? We're well. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for inviting me once again. <laughs> yeah, because we want to talk about Booker T. Washington, the making of a Pan-Africanist. That's the title of your book, a best-selling book. Folks, you got to pick up this book. A lot of people don't know much about Booker T. Washington, what he did in Tuskegee. But the making of a Pan-Africanist, is the subtitle, people didn't know that, too. And, they, you know, some people are trying to make a negative connotation of being a Pan-Africanist when you shouldn't be. So I thank you for doing this book. But also, he had a lot to do with Liberia. Can you fill us in on that, Dr. Wright? Yes, 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 I can. But what I, I wanted to make one correction. It's Booker T. Washington and Africa. And as I'm talking to you, uh, so the book is called Booker T. Washington and Africa. And the subtitle is The Making of a Pan-Africanist. And so a lot of people forget that, that that part is in the title when it's very important because there are so many books about Du Bois in Africa. As I speak to you, I see I'm looking at one right now, an edited book on Du Bois and on Africa. So Washington had a whole clandestine life and a lot of activity in terms of African affairs um, during what we call the Nadir, 1895 to 1915, but it's also the age of Booker T. Washington. And he, during that period, actually was a key negotiator in the preservation of Liberia. And he is asked to do that by a U.S. Uh, counsel named Ernest Lyon. And it's because the French and the British, and even the Germans at one time, are interested in the territories now known as Liberia. They were all attempting to encroach upon this particular territory in Africa, one of only two territories or nations, eventually, that would not be colonized by European imperialist powers. So Booker T. Washington spins into action. At that time, he is an uh, advisor to Theodore Roosevelt and then Taft during this period, 1907 to 1912. And he is able, I'm not going to tell you the whole story here, we don't have enough time, but he is able to negotiate uh, above board and below on the preservation of Liberia. The European powers, France and Britain in particular, had decided that they would imitate each other in the region, taking opposite sides of the uh, territory known as Liberia. And the U.S. at that time 
although the American racist organization called the American Colonization Society had been instrumental and key in not only initiating Liberia, but expatriating and resettling African people in America who survived slavery to Liberia. The U.S. government made no economic commitment to Liberia at all. And this is because if they claim stakes in Liberia, obviously they would have to follow through economically. So what they did instead was they sat off the off the coast of Liberia and put down conflicts between African so-called Americans who would become known as Americo-Liberians and indigenous Liberian ethnic groups. And so Washington was the person who goes through, you know, U.S. political channels to try to preserve Liberia. That doesn't work. And then ultimately he, he negotiates a um, multinational buyout of these colonial powers that ultimately secures the fate of Liberia. So it's a very protracted um, struggle. Uh, he was the person that you, uh, that Liberian officials chose to contact. During these negotiations, Washington brings the uh, Liberian Commission to Tuskegee, where he hosts them, and then brings them back to the United to Washington D.C., where he, in spite of what people were saying in the public realm about Washington going to the White House, he had been there many times, and he would bring the Liberian Commission to a secret meeting at the White House between Theodore Roosevelt, incumbent, uh, incoming or President-elect Taft. Secretary of State Elihu Root and himself, as well as the commission, to directly appeal for support in light of these uh, attempted encroachment on attempts to encroach upon uh, Liberia. And so he would facilitate that and then also hold the candle or keep the torch lit. Uh, in the Senate and in political spaces in order to secure ultimately library. You you have to read the uh, book or the case within right. the book. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, Dr. Rye, hold, hold that thought. That, yeah, hold that thought right there because we're going to take a quick break and check the traffic and whether or not different cities, though. Hold we'll come on. back. Tell okay. us, did, did he get, did did, uh, did Booker, did he get any pushback from from black folks? When he was doing this for Liberia, did anybody, you know, any of these groups say, you know, he's on the wrong track and disagree with what he was doing or were they jealous of his, his, his role in the administration? I'll let you explain that to us when we get back after checking the traffic okay. and whether or not different cities. Uh, 15 okay. minutes after the top of the hour, we're back in four minutes with our guest, Dr. Tyrene Wright, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, or information is power. 
And good morning, family, and thanks for rolling with us this morning. Our guest is Dr. Tyreen Wright. Dr. Wright is the author of the book, Booker T. Washington and Africa, the Making of a Pan-Africanist. And he was talking about the move, what he was doing with Liberia. And before we left for the traffic and weather update, my question to Dr. Wright was, did he get any pushback from Africans here about the resettlement of Liberia? Dr. Wright. Yes, absolutely. He got pushback, but he was not uh, open or um, obvious about his efforts in the preservation of Liberia. That's one of the very interesting things about Washington. Most of what we know about him behind the scenes was not revealed and available to any of us until about 1970 when his personal papers were open. So most of his activity in regard to Liberia was uh, clandestine, was behind the scenes, except for the U.S. officials and Liberian officials that were aware of his participation and role. But this is the thing. I do believe in the contemporary sense, there is a conversation about Washington's role in Liberia, as some have learned about it through my book and and recent conversations about his role in Africa. And the assumption is that he took the very typical posture that many of our other beloved um, scholars, intellectuals, activists took, which was that they were in staunch support of Liberia. And it's easy to think that that is um, the natural inclination for African so-called Americans or African-Americans or Black Americans, because, you know, expatriation or resettling in Liberia seemed like a dream for those trying to escape a very um, racist and violent America at that time. But there were some serious contradictions in the settlement of uh, the American Liberian population in the country. And so, you know, um, there are criticisms to be leveled. So, for example, let me be very specific. Both Du Bois and then later Garvey supported the settlement of African-Americans, which would be called uh, called American Liberians in the region. However, what happened within the country is very interesting. The settlement or the resettlement of American Liberians would cause much strife in the country because they would essentially uh, own all political power and structures, create a system of uh, discrimination against the indigenous uh, Liberians, who had never been displaced by slavery or any related historical offense. And so this was problematic, and it would sow the seeds of war in the country, okay? Most of the contemporary issues we know Liberia to face, even the last 13 years' war, and many other issues along class and ethnic strife, are rooted in the resettlement of the American Liberian population. Garvey and Du Bois failed to critique this adequately. And Washington, at the end of the case that I discuss in my book, The Liberian Crisis, he does critique this. He does give recommendations and he does level criticism. And that's important. While we support 
the resettlement of African-Americans in Liberia as AmeriCorps Liberians, we can never support the impression and marginalization and abuse of any African people here, there, or anywhere. And Washington was fundamentally against that. And he gives recommendations at the end of uh, the case when everything is resolved to Liberian officials. And he tells them that if you fail to resolve the Liberian and indis- the, the, the American Liberian and the indigenous Liberian issue, it will be the death and destruction of the nation conclusively. And um, I think that that was very sound for him to level that criticism because he understood internal strife and uh, unfortunately setting up systems of marginalization against the indigenous Liberian population was going to lead to no good end. All right. I got a tweet question for you at 27 after time. Yeah. Actually, c- coming from uh, Brother Tony Browder. And he says, ask the author yes. about Washington's invitation for Garvey to come to Tuskegee. Was this part of a plan to unite African-Americans with Africa? Uh, I, I don't think so. What what inspires this communication between Garvey and Booker T. Washington is the fact that Garvey had found out from eight educators from Jamaica about the 1912 International Conference on the Negro. And those eight educators would attend and get a chance to see Tuskegee as a sustainable model. So 44 industries existed at Tuskegee, and they would open them up at this 1912 International Conference on the Negro uh, to the African world, and it is attended is particularly to share Tuskegee methods and practices with the African world, both on the continent in the Caribbean, Central, and South America. Part of the resolutions for that 1912 International Conference on the Negro would be to erect a Tuskegee-like institute in Jamaica specifically. So when you see Garvey uh, moving around the Caribbean and Central America uh, before 1916, he's trying to raise money for a school. What school? This school that is initiated or in the resolutions of the 1912 International Conference on the Negro at Tuskegee. It's because of that conference and the communications and the information that these eight educators would bring back to Garvey in Jamaica that he initiates contact with Booker T. Washington. He begins to write him from that point on, and they maintain a relationship until 1915 at the time of Washington's death. What would they talk about? Garvey would talk about the uh, resistance he would get from Uh, other Jamaicans about his desire and his efforts to organize Black people. He would also be inspired by Washington, and this is his words. These are his words. He says he was inspired by Washington's up from slavery, his story, his rise through enslavement. He was inspired by the Tuskegee model and He would model the UNIA, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, after the Tuskegee model. And so he he credits Washington 
with not only waking him up, but giving him a vision and a mission, okay? And he would write him and share a pamphlet of how he structured the UNIA after the Tuskegee model. That being said, Washington would invite him during this time to Tuskegee to see the model for himself. And that was the nature of the relationship. You mentioned the Tuskegee model. What was the Tuskegee model? It's 30 minutes after the top of the hour, family. Dr. Wright, okay. what was the Tuskegee model? Um, and thank you for asking me that question because I'm writing right now something that's going to set the record straight. A lot of people confuse uh, the Tuskegee model for um, some efforts of colonialism or, you know, I don't know, any number of things that are incorrect. The Tuskegee model was simply one thing, to perfect a sustainable community for African people. And he is conscious, Washington, of this in the sense that once he comes there and realizes that he himself will never take a trip to Africa or be able to spend any significant time in Africa, which he wanted to do, Read the story of the Negro, the rise of the race from slavery. You get all of Washington's thoughts, feelings, and utterances about Africa and African people. And he makes it plain and says he always wanted to be involved in Africa in some significant way. When he is roped into Tuskegee as its first principal, uh, he is unable to ever see himself being able to go see himself in Africa or taking a trip to Africa. And so he lives vicariously through his students. And one of the things that he is aware of is that he is perfecting these various industries at Tuskegee. Okay. So book making, uh, uh, I don't know, mattress making, shoe making, wheel writing, wagon making, brick making, building buildings, uh, all the first buildings at Tuskegee are constructed, not just by the students, but with Tuskegee bricks with Alabama red clay. So he is aware that he has perfected something and that the institution and community has become sustainable, okay, through all of these industries. And that is the Tuskegee model, okay, sustainable community. Even in the case of Liberia, that is what he tells Liberians, aside from saying resolve the indigenous and Americo-Liberian issue. He says, every time you open a can in Liberia that you've imported from someone else, you feel the fate of Liberians in poverty. So what the Tuskegee model was all about was producing what you consumed, sustainability. Okay, it had nothing to do with colonizing anyone. It had none of that. Okay, Um, and on that question, because that comes up, and I've seen some young scholars who have, you know, gotten a bits and pieces um, from other places and taken off with it, implying that uh, because of a book written by Zimmerman on Alabama and Africa, uh, which is the Tuskegee's um, role in the cotton expedition in Togo, they have taken off and tried to say that, you know, Washington or Tuskegee was involved in colonizing uh, parts of Africa, which is uh, almost ridiculous because the institution in Washington himself had no 
such might or intention. But I will say there is a moment in time where Washington, unlike, unfortunately, Du Bois and, and Garvey, clarifies this point. There is a venture capitalist, American venture capitalist, who has his sights on the, the Sudan. And he writes. I'll, I'll tell you what, Dr. Wright, right, hold a thought right there because we got to take a last look at the news, traffic, and weather. And I'll let you uh, finish your thought. Also, Ross Jilmer in Buffalo's got a question for you. Folks, you too can join this discussion with Dr. Tyreen Wright. Reach out to us at 800 450 7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB, also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, or information is power. Good morning again, family. It's one minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest, Dr. Tyreen Wright. She's written a book on Booker T. Washington. It's titled Booker T. Washington and Africa, The Making of a Pan-Africanist. Before we go back to it, let me just remind you, in the next few days, we'll, you're going to hear from attorney Malik Shabazz. Uh, Dr. Sebi's son, Abdul, will be with us. Also, a Pan-African educator, Dr. Kemet Shockley, will join us. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. Uh, Dr. Ryan, I'm going to let you finish your thought. Then uh, Brother Ross Jomo in Buffalo has a question for you. Yes. So there was a venture capitalist, an American venture capitalist, who uh, wrote to Booker T. Washington. And let me be clear, a white American venture capitalist. And he wrote to Washington mistakenly believing that Washington would support uh, the colonization of African people, period. And it is in Washington's personal papers where he responds to this venture capitalist who was trying to colonize the so-called Negro in the Sudan. And Washington is very clear and pointed in his response. He says, you know, best of luck to you, basically, but I do not support the colonizing of the Negro anywhere. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So for those who have this question about Washington's role in Africa and assume that his posture was that of others or that his posture was the same as American Liberians, really, or even Du Bois and Garvey, both who supported Liberia but did um, display an inclination to think that there should have been some colonization of the indigenous African. That's well documented. I use Garvey's documents, and unfortunately, when I use some of his work, I have to address that one issue where he uses the term colonization. Washington uh, was very different than this. He did not believe and support the colonization of any African person 
anywhere on this earth, <laughs> okay? And certainly not by African people who had survived slavery and would go back to Africa and set up a system of uh, discrimination and marginalization of the indigenous African person. So in on the question and issue of colonization, it's a no for Washington. And on the question and issue of oppression and systems of marginalization as it related to Booker T. Washington, he spoke on all of it directly to the persons involved, and it was a no for him in that respect as well. All right, 17 away from the top. As I mentioned, Ross Jomo's joining us from Buffalo. He's on line two. Good morning, Ross Jomo. Good morning. Greetings. Uh, first, I want to just, you know, talk about, uh, I think, the spiritual connection that you must have had in order to put these facts together, because uh, I had a chance to read most of the book again, and uh, I was just recently in Jamaica, actually outside of Marcus Garvey's place where he lived, and it was, it was very interesting to see the reasons that led up to him and how he set up his rules for the UNIA. But one, mm-hmm. of, the, one of the things I, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the things that I find, uh, one of the most interesting lines I found in the book is the quote from uh, Thomas Dixon, which I think is a little deeper than what most people also look at, where he talks about every pupil who passes through Mr. Washington's hand sees forever to work under a white man. Not only so, but he goes forth trained as an evangelist to preach the doctrine of separation and independence. So Washington was able to do and set up things without saying it. And I think that that's really one of the important things of us having our own internal communication and not listening or not really getting our information about each other from others, even scholars who might want to mislead us or who don't have the spiritual connection. I I, I know that you're bringing that out without saying it, all of this information has been here all along, and no one has decoded it so that people can see the foundation. You know, he was trying to educate and raise nations from Tuskegee, not just influence individuals. Can you just touch on that? And are you doing a part two? That was the other question. But I'll listen to the, <laughs> to the answer. Thank you. Thank you so much for, one, supporting the work, the book. Um Two, I see you have thoroughly read it and understood it, and I always appreciate that. I I appreciate people who have that the work actually touches and lands, you know, because you never know if it really does. And, And I made a conscious effort to take this book out of the hands of um, exclusive conversations amongst intellectuals in, in the academy and and give it back to our people, which it belongs to, okay? Um, so thank you, first of all. But uh, Thomas Dixon, yes. Uh, Thomas Dixon called himself Exposing Tuskegee and the Works at Tuskegee. And he is, unfortunately, or fortunately for us, he's actually right in the sense that Washington did have a plan, he did have a program, uh, uh, and he was implementing it uh, covertly, so to speak. Uh, What precipitated that article, the dangerous aspects of the Tuskegee model written by Thomas Dixon, uh, the author of The Klansman, which inspired the film, The the Real Birth of a Nation, not the redone one, (laughs) that caused so much controversy and was a rallying call for the Klan at the turn of the century, 20th century. What 
made him write that was because he thought that Washington had thoroughly uh, deceived and um, had so many white Southerners in particular fooled and certainly white Northerners and philanthropists, okay? So what he was trying to say to the white masses and, and, and alike was that, hey, this guy Washington, he's not exactly, you know, um, neutral and um, unthreatening. He's doing some serious things, and that's why it's called the Dangerous Works at, the, um, dangerous works at, at Tuskegee. Uh, but yes, you are correct. He was doing this clandestinely. He did not let everyone know what he was doing. Tuskegee always produced, as someone wrote in uh, the Encyclopedia of Black Studies, Tuskegee always produced more college-educated Black people who understood the aspects of nation management, education, and institution building than it produced manual laborers. It was never designed to produce manual laborers. laborers. It was always a school for teachers meant to teach the the, uh, academics and for those same teachers to perfect two, um, two industries, two trades, so that they can go on and teach others those as well. But these were institution builders that he was producing, and that was clear in the first and the second charters of the institution. Um, I think your last point was um, that, you know, we don't know this work because of, um, you know, I guess uh, the disconnect. And I'm sure you saw that in the book, in the preface of the book where I discuss why we don't know this about Washington um, and and why our Black scholars were deterred from doing the primary work, from doing the deep research in Washington's personal papers and all that is available, which is a great deal. And it has everything to do with the academy. It has everything to do with white scholars who we have allowed to define one of our greatest leaders in the history of our um, people in the Western Hemisphere here, you know. So, um, so this book was an interruption of all of that, and somehow it has made its way back into academic conversations. But once again, this is a history, a legacy that belongs to us African people uh, here in the United States. We produced the Washington that was born in slavery, but then would go on to negotiate the fate of an African nation. We have to own that. And whether whether we have positive or negative things to say about him, we should be the ones to say it. <laughs> Amen. Ten away from the topic. What was his relationship with, with Dubois? Ah, his relationship, and I addressed it in the book. And I and there's still other. There's more. There's more. My book really is just the tip of the iceberg, but there's more to even explore with Washington and Du Bois. Uh, just to the other callers too, I want to say yes. There is a there is a revised and expanded version where I give you a whole lot more because there's more to say about all of this and more to say about Du Bois and Washington. They had a positive relationship for about nine years from the time they meet each other until uh, around somewhere around the time uh, the uh, the uh, Souls of Black Folks is published. However. The year that book is not the the parting of ways, okay? 
Du Bois speaks extensively. And this tells me the fact that people don't generally know that Du Bois did not have a real um, issue with Washington and that he himself spoke on it in terms of what his real issue tells me that people are not even reading Du Bois' own, his own words, you know. Uh, but he writes an interesting essay, Du Bois, called My Personal Relations with Booker T. Washington and Others, where he discusses his relationship with Washington from 1904, where he initiates contact to look or ask for a job until a little after 1903. And ultimately, what happens between the two of them is a rift that has to do with a generational, um, I guess you can say, conflict, right? Washington is well-established. Washington has power. He has an institution. He's not necessarily a teacher. He hires the teachers. <laughs> du Bois, although a, a Ph.D. from Harvard, you know, he is looking for a job. He is on the come up, so to speak, uh, or trying to. And Washington mentors him in many ways, okay? He spends a lot of time, Du Bois, in Tuskegee, coalescing with Washington, Washington's wife, Margaret Murray Washington, which is well-documented and even admitted by Du Bois that he attended Fisk with Margaret Murray Washington, Washington's uh, last uh, wife, third and last wife. Uh, but what Du Bois' chief issue was with Washington was that Washington had a mechanism, a unit called the Tuskegee Machine, which was a secret network of power brokers, some of which were on his board, some of which he was just in political affiliation with. And these power brokers did a lot of things, sometimes uh, even things people may question but most of the time, always to the benefit of, of black people, African people in the United States. That being said, Washington could silence almost anyone in the black press because he had significant control of this. And using the Tuskegee machine, he would politic and, um, you know, maneuver on many levels. He could silence anyone he, who did not agree with him, and Du Bois and Du Bois had a big problem with this, and reasonably so, right? Someone with that level of power at that time, he did not like this. He understood that not only Washington could not only could Washington silence others, he could silence him, Du Bois, if he wanted to, and so that was very threatening to Du Bois. He never directly expressed this to Washington, but he writes about it after Washington's death. Washington, on the other hand, did not have a huge issue with Du Bois in his own words. He never really says what he what really happened between them, except for that there is an implication that he did not like that Du Bois went to Boston. Uh, in the summer of 1903, and congratulated uh, Washington's chief critic, Monroe Trotter, the editor of The Guardian, that would criticize Washington publicly. Du Bois was aligned with him, also had a relationship with him, and publicly said, you know, you did a good job in handling the riots, although Trotter was mm -hmm. not involved in the riots. He was right. a leader. And, and 
And, and Dr. Wright, we're just about out of time, flat out of time. How can we get your book real quick? <laughs> okay, so already I saw people ordering the book. You can get the book at the website, BookerTWashingtonInAfrica.com. It used to be on Amazon, but it's too expensive on Amazon. Okay. This is a book for our people. So BookerTWashingtonInAfrica.com. All right. Thanks, Dr. Wright. Folks, we're late. we got to get out of here real quick. Stay strong. Stay positive. Please stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow morning, 6 o'clock, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also on the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power.